Okay, day mate, 40 here. So let's start off with a little bit from Decoding the Gurus, an indulgent dinner conversation between Douglas Murray and Eric Weinstein. Can this solve our civilizational crisis? Also emphasize the non-self-indulgent, non-backpatting nature of it. The title of this episode, The Portal, episode 41, is Douglas Murray Heroism 2020, Defense of Our Own Civilization. Heroism 2020, Defense of Our Own Civilization. And who would he be referring to in describing these heroes, these defenders of civilization, Chris? In an thing our own which is impossible to parody, he's referring to himself and Douglas Murray. Like that's, it's, it's true. It's, it's not even... There isn't some sort of, you know, weird take on this. He's just saying Douglas and him are heroes. <laughs> that's, that's a bold, it's a bold way to title an episode. So, yeah, so that gives you a sense of where the conversation's going and uh, Murray's background. So, yeah, this would be great. Let's get into it. Just before we start, it's probably fair to say that he's the right-wing conservative commentator who most often gets invoked as an intellectual powerhouse amongst critics of the left, that that Douglas Murray is, whatever you'll say about him, somebody that you have to take seriously. And there's a particular love affair with him amongst the intellectuals within the intellectual dark web. This title is an example, but it's really hard to overstate how far they regard him as their own political guru who is cutting through the bullshit, delivering to the... Uh... So Douglas Murray is somewhere between mainstream conservatism and, and alt-right. So I remember I heard him speak at David Horowitz's organization, so the Wednesday Morning Club, and Douglas Murray talked about like bulldozing uh, mosques in, in England if uh, anyone in the mosque was involved in a terrorist incident. So he goes, he goes much further than your typical conservative while still just staying within the Overton window. And he is, it's true, he is regarded as this like premier intellectual, where really he's another populist right-winger essentially serving a, a moderate IQ crowd. Uh, American and Anglo-sphere world, the truth of the modern era that we need to heed to. So, uh, you know, people might take issue with us including him in the guru sphere, given that, you know, he's more out towards the journalist side of things. But I think we'll see that, especially for some of the gurus that we cover, he is a guru. He's a guru of gurus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Eric himself describes him in very flattering terms and uh, very clearly regards him as an intellectual heavyweight uh, and a big influence. So, yeah, that might be a good clip to start with. But the last thing I will also say, Matt, is that we, we decided that because this episode is equally filled with Ericisms, it's at least yes. it's maybe 60 percent Eric talking. And that involves him saying lots of, you know, lots of Eric Weinsteinian stuff uh, that we could spend hours on. But OK, so just wanted to make sure everything was working technically. So my. Opening thought for today is that I've been in Australia for six weeks now, and I have not heard anyone say happy holidays. 
people only say Merry Christmas here? And so I've asked around other Australians, do, do people say happy holidays? So maybe the educated crowd, the more cultural crowd is more likely to say happy holidays. And I'm just not getting that feedback. Apparently everyone in Australia says Merry Christmas. Everyone meaning 90% plus. While among the circles that, that I run in Los Angeles, the more educated circles, quote, is increasingly happy holidays. And so I'm thinking there are a lot of advantages to having a coherent coherent civilization where you just have one specific message, such as Merry Christmas, as opposed to a generic message, Happy Holidays, which just, it's like President's Day. Like when you had a, a day off to celebrate George Washington and a day off to celebrate Abraham Lincoln, that meant something. But when it turned into President's Day, it drained it of meaning. So who is the pundit for high IQ right-wingers? Is it Luke Ford? Is it Elliot Blatt? I would say it's Steve Saylor. He's pretty good. Uh, Charles Murray is pretty good. Uh, I, I could think of some, some other people. Stephen Turner is pretty good. Nathan Kofnis is, is pretty good. So when you have a coherent, cohesive civilization, that overall benefits the civilization, but obviously it's going to come at a price for people who are outside the norm. So I recognize that there's a price to be paid when everyone says Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. So in America, I really strive hard not to say Merry Christmas because it would it would be a betrayal of my Judaism. I'm By saying Merry Christmas, I'm I'm verbally seeming to celebrate that, that Jesus is the Christ. And obviously, as a Jew, I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. So some Jews disagree with me, even just can't get in the mood if Luke doesn't play his intro music. Yeah, I was too too lazy to download it and play it. So I know some Orthodox Jews who are quite fine with saying Merry Christmas, but generally speaking, the rabbis I've spoken to say, no, you shouldn't say Merry Christmas because that essentially saying that Jesus is the Christ, you should say happy holidays. So that's what I try to do in America, and that's what I usually do in America. But in Australia, where everyone says Merry Christmas, I have compromised. I'm, I'm not going to say happy holidays when every single person says Merry Christmas or Merry Chrissy. Right? Australians like to shorten things and uh, give it a good nickname. So it's Merry Chrissy. And so, yeah, I say Merry Chrissy. So... People who are Christian, people who are of another religion, another civilization, another culture who live in Australia, there's a price to be paid for Australia being much more homogeneous. But overall, it's good for Australia, right? If everyone says Merry Christmas, if everyone's on the same page, right, your civilization is going to work much better rather than draining events of all meaning and just using some generic happy holidays. So... There's a price to be paid for homogeneity and cohesiveness and coherence and high social trust. So that may mean that people on the outs, they get more made fun of. God forbid they get taunted. God forbid they get bullied. God forbid they might even get beaten up. But given that Australia has a really low crime rate and the most homogeneous white Christian parts of America have very low crime rates, I say that's a price worth paying, right? That if people who are not in the majority feel a little bit uncomfortable, 
all right, that that's a net loss for them. But if it helps to build a more coherent, cohesive, and high social trust society, then even people who are in the minority benefit. Don't feel like you're living in a civilization that is at war with itself, as in much of the United States. Now, when I say Australia is a more coherent, cohesive nation than the United States, that doesn't mean Australia is better. I think in that respect, Australia is better. But America is much more powerful, right? America has the most powerful military and economy. America is much more dynamic. There's much more freedom in the United States. So Australia and New Zealand, these are societies built around fairness. The United States is around freedom. There's much more opportunity in America. The people who are at the best, who are the best in their professions, tend to really want to move to America to be with other people at the peak of their their profession. So the most ambitious people in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, England, France, Germany, typically want to move to America because this is the best place to be ambitious striver. So Australia ranks something like number 22 in the world in economic innovation. So the United States has about the most productive, the hardest working workforce. In the world. So everything comes with prices and with benefits. Australia is cohesive and it's coherent, but it is relatively low on economic innovation scale. And Australia has much more of the poor poppy syndrome where people exceed everyone else, then the tendency is to try to cut them down. So I've been reading a book on a trilogy on the war in Pacific, and it makes the point that if there's any people be immune to gurus and to hero worshipping and to idolizing people, I think it would be Australians. But when Douglas MacArthur came here in 1942, and organized the defense of Australia, he was idolized. He was venerated. There were holidays, Douglas MacArthur. So Australians don't normally put people on a pedestal. Australians don't normally hero worship. But Douglas MacArthur and and Australia, he was loved, beloved, idolized. He was the man who was going to save Australia. So that's something of an exception. But generally speaking, Aussies are... Skeptical of gurus, skeptical of people who put themselves above others, people who are up themselves, Aussie phrase. So if you want to be an ambitious individualist striver, you'll find it a lot easier to do that in America. Well, in Australia, it's really more about mateship. And mateship in Australia developed as a reaction to the British class system. So Britain class is fairly stratified for well over a thousand years. But in Australia, there's mateship. So if you're the bank manager or you're on the dole or you're the garbage man, there's a sense of equality and a sense that you're all in it together many things for you. So mateship transcends class. Social class is not as big a deal in Australia as it is in England. But the, the mateship comes also with a price. So mateship is a force that leads towards cohesion, coherence, high social trust, but also some uniformity and some discouraging of trying to put yourself above others. Get a little bit more here from decoding the gurus on Douglas Murray speaking with Eric Weinstein. We will forgo that and we've agreed to basically try to avoid focusing on what Eric is doing. And we will we will keep that 
into a little condensed segment where we are allowed to indulge in looking at some of the worst things that Eric says during this four and a half hour interview. But we're mainly going to try and focus on the man of the hour, Douglas Murray. Good plan. Let's do it. All right. So speaking of Murray being front and center, I think a good place to start is where Eric positions him. And we will see that he's a central figure in a topic that we often end up talking about. But I'm going to reveal something on this program that I've waited to reveal. Um, people always ask me, well, you, you, you named the IDW. Uh, who's in the intellectual dark web? And you were patient zero. <laughs> okay. There's a great video here by Ryan Long. He's talking about left-wing sponsors versus right-wing sponsors. Break here to tell you about our sponsors. sponsors. Now, this episode is brought to you by Bunker Vitamins. The world is ending, folks. You're going to want all the nutrients that you can get. All right, comrades. This next segment is brought to you by Monsanto and PepsiCola. Now, this is an anti-critical race theory cup. For those of you who hate propaganda, you're going to love drinking out of this. And that tax the rich moment was brought to you by Amazon and China National Petroleum. This is just a mug that says liberals are bad. And she's listening and Chase Bank. Folks, I can't wait to tell you about this new product, Freedom Water. Now, this is just a jug of water for those who love freedom. Good old-fashioned American H2O. Citadel and Berkshire Hathaway. January 6th, commemorative Patriot Plungers. Now, if you use the promo code Election Stolen. This podcast is also a collaboration with Netflix Podcast Studio, HBO, and Hulu. Now, this is Second Amendment computer paper here. It's just a blank sheet of paper for those out there that love the Second Amendment. State Farm Insurance, if you want to say. This is a Patriot pillow, folks. As you you know, the Civil War is about to happen. You're going to want a good night's sleep first. Ten reasons why you should get boosted. Brought to you by Pfizer. Now, the segment 10 Reasons Why the Economy is Crashing is actually brought to you by Gold Bars. Now, this is just an actual gold bar that you can buy with the promo code PATRIOT. Let them know we sent you. But do you know who's really into equity and inclusion? Mercedes-Benz. Now, this is a top-of-the-line vehicle. Handles curves like no other in its class. Now, I recommend you get on this because, as you know, the American dollar will be as good as dust in less than a week. If you buy two cars this holiday season, they will throw in your pronouns on the license plate. No charge. Now, that left-wing cringe moment was brought to you by America First Dirt. Now, this is just good old-fashioned American dirt. Oh, cringe. Uh, anyways, that right-wing cringe moment is brought to you by Soros Fund Management. Now, this is the real deal dirt here. You're not going to find this kind of dirt in hell holes like Venezuela. Planned Parenthood. Mothers Against Prosecution Reform. And that is why we need to raise the minimum wage. Now, let me tell you about Apple Worldwide. They are opening factories around the world. If you want to stand up and say, no, I will not let America be turned into Venezuela by the end of this calendar month, you're going to want this can opener. 0.001% of those profits will be going to help marginalized genders. 0.001% of the profits from Bunker Vitamins go to supporting the troops. Oh, my God, we got 100K from the Democratic Party. I just want to say that Joe Biden is a great, sharp, cognizant president. He is the GOAT. And get your vaccines. Now, this is the Patriot Blind Cane for the visually impaired patriots. Just because you can't see doesn't mean you have to be blind to the onslaught the Biden administration is waging on your family. Use promo code Let's Go Brandon. I'm personally of the mind that bunker ties should not be associating with the Patriot Hour. I would email them immediately. As some of you may have heard, bunker ties has parted ways with us after a little bit of heat on Twitter. And I just want to say that bunker ties does not support freedom of speech. I recommend anyone watching at home burn their bunker ties immediately. And this is no 
longer a tie for people who love America. Maybe you should just contact their employer. So Patriot Water has, in fact, dropped us as a sponsor, and I recommend everyone at home burn their Patriot Water effective immediately. All right, let's do a local fair trade organic coffee review brought to you by McDonald's. I am loving it. Patriot Pipe Cleaners. Now, this is a great way to fight back against a totalitarian government trying to put your kids in Chinese internment camps. And these burgers were made with 100% local... Uh, diversity hires. Now this here is a Patriot bath bomb. For those of you lucky enough to escape the communist takeover, you're going to want to treat your wife to something nice. Well, just a reminder, we have four days left until climate change destroys the planet, so just a reminder to fly American. Remember, the apocalypse is coming. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Loving it. Okay. This is pretty good. <laughs> Ryan Long there. I mean, that's so true. The, the sponsors on the left Right. We're talking big bucks. We're talking corporate America, like corporate America lined up behind terrorist group Black Lives Matter. So from Apple to Sony Pictures to even that, that Christian uh, chicken store lined up behind Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter funding. And uh, who funds right wing podcasts? It's you know, Alex Jones type uh, sponsors or it's uh, supplements. It's uh, on the one hand, you've got the elite, you've got the corporate, you've got the big bucks funding the left and, and the people funding the right. We're compared to Mercedes Benz, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. So I was reading the Washington Post this morning, and uh, the article is How Ted Koppel's Trip to Mayberry Turned into 20. 2021's most striking moments of TV. So you'll be shocked. Ted Koppel goes into the American South and he discovers it's angry and it's racist. So the veteran newsman, Ted Koppel, and CBS Sunday Morning contributor explains, explains how a seeming puff piece about the Andy Griffith show turned into an unsettling snapshot of an angry America. Well, in general, who gets angry and who gets happy? Well, generally speaking, losers get angry and winners feel pretty good. Winners feel like all is right with the world. So at the height of the coronavirus pandemic lockdown, veteran journalist Ted Koppel was working out on the treadmill when he came across an episode of the Andy Griffith Show. He caught his attention because of something he heard earlier that day while listening to WMAL, a Virginia-based conservative talk radio station. Lister had called in to explain that they used to live in the Washington area, but they couldn't stand how woke it had become, so they fled to the South. He said something like, you moved down here to the Carolinas, and boy, life is just wonderful. People are so lovely. They're so neighborly. Everything is so nice. Now, does that mean that some people are not unneighborly? Does that mean there's zero crime? Does that mean there's zero dysfunction? Does that mean that uh, people may not go off you know, to travel the world and, and die, or may go fight in the U.S. military in Afghanistan and die? Of course not. So they're talking about generalizations. But uh, Ted Koppel, who's 81 years of age, started thinking about how the Andy Griffith show was also set in the Carolinas, the fictional town of Mayberry, North Carolina. So I, uh, my, my viewers are in the South. After his workout, he went online, discovered that CBS comedy was an even bigger hit than he remembered. The series starring Andy Griffith as a good-natured sheriff and Ron Howard as his adorable young son, one of the most watched shows from its debut in 1960 until it went off the air in 1968. More intriguingly, while Mayberry was not real, the city of Mount Airy, North Carolina, claims to be the prototype on which it was based, and it still draws thousands of tourists every year looking to relive their beloved show. So, in the United States, the big cities in particular have become 
majority minority, right? America's big cities are frequently minority white, according to census. But rural America has not changed in its demographics very much. So I would not expect that Mount Airy has suddenly gone majority Latina. So Ted Koppel was curious, what made the show so popular and what was it about this community that makes people want to come visit decades later? So what started with those general questions wound up evolving into one of the most striking TV segments of the year. I can't play any of it because CBS is really tight about his copyrights. As Ted Koppel was visibly taken aback by the fierce nostalgia for a time and a place that literally never existed, how it connects to the misinformation that has infiltrated America's politics. Okay, so people connect to an emotion, right? People connect to a TV show because it summons emotions. People connect to a novel or a book or a piece of music because it summons up emotions. It's not about exactitude with facts, right? People go to church to recapture the feeling of community and togetherness and coherence and cohesion and high social trust that we had when, when life was more rural than, than urban. So you go in a big city to a church or to a synagogue or to a mosque, that's a way to kind of recapture urban, not urban, rural values when, when people knew each other and trusted each other. So Ted Koppel says, people looking back at that program seem to confuse the program with what reality was like in those days. Do they really confuse it or are they just having an emotion? Right? You can't, you can't come along with facts and say, oh, you shouldn't have these emotions. Wishing that we could only restore some of the good feelings, some of the kindness, some of the decency. Well, there were good feelings and kindness and decency back in days and still to be found today. But what they're really reflecting on is not what was going on in a particular North Carolina community. What they're reflecting on, what was going on in the creative minds of a bunch of scriptwriters out in Hollywood, who in turn were working out of their own conception of what uh, rural life is like. South. So Ted Koppel understands why people connect and cling to a show about a friendly small town where any minor issue was resolved in 30 minutes with commercial breaks. Right. People like to escape like to feel happy, right? So with the Andy Griffith show, the viewing experience that Ted Koppel compared to chomping down on a marshmallow. Well, there's nothing wrong with chomping down on a marshmallow. There's an antidote to everything going on in the world at the time. Oh, so if bad things are happening on the other side of the world, we shouldn't feel neighborly and friendly and uh, good in our own small town. Things going on in the world never showed up on the sunny... TV series, tens of thousands of American troops killed in Vietnam War, race riots throughout the country, assassinations. Why does a TV show about small-town America need to reflect all these things going on elsewhere? Right? There were also tens of thousands of small towns where life was was good. So I, I don't see why we have to have race riots TV series about a country town. If there's any period that matches our current period terms of how terrible things were and how difficult the 1960s were, it says Ted Koppel. So he does this 13-minute segment on CBS Sunday Morning, which starts out looking like a pleasant feature about Mount Airy embracing its role as a stand-in for Mayberry, though its only connection to the Andy Griffiths show is that Mount Airy was a real-life Griffiths hometown. So it kicks off with a cheerful whistle theme song, 
and camera show the Andy Griffith Museum. And the interview, the piece takes its first hint of a darker, more serious turn as Koppel interviews one man who says, our godless society use a dose of the good old days, back when neighbors were neighbors and they provided for everybody else. Oh, so this is a darker, more serious turn. What you're saying is true of certain people, Ted Koppel tells him, informs him. You were black in the 1960s. Things were not all that good. Well, guess what? There were things were good for some black people in the 1960s, and things were bad for some black people in the 1960s. Things were good for some white people in the 1960s. Things were bad for some white people. It's not like things were just bad for blacks prior to 1970. Then after 1970, things got much better. After civil rights legislation and after all the race riots, things did get better for some black people in America. And at the same time, things got worse. What I'm arguing against here is the big theory of history, that we're, we're marching inevitably towards a better and better and more free future. Every time you pass legislation to ensure that more and more people have their rights, right? you pass legislation to ensure, for example, that renters have more rights, but simultaneously taking rights away from homeowners. And so when we pass all this civil rights legislation, legislation against all forms of discrimination, whether it's on sex or sexual preference, right, you're simultaneously taking away from freedom of association, right, freedom of who you do business with. So some rights are being expanded while other rights are being reduced, right? It's not like there's this inevitable path forward where we just all get more and more rights and everything becomes more wonderful. So the black family, indisputably, was much stronger prior to the 1960s than it was after the 1960s, right? But parts of black life have gotten better since the 1960s. Parts of black life have gotten worse. A crime surge in the black community after the civil rights legislation. So with all the, the rights, civil rights that were passed in the 1960s, things got better for many homosexuals. At the same time, with those expansion of rights, you had an expansion in sexual promiscuity, and then you had a massive AIDS outbreak. Right? So for those homosexuals who took advantage of their new rights and caught AIDS and died, then the new freedoms were not a tremendous blessing. So life got better for some homosexuals after the 1960s with more rights. Life got worse. It killed other homosexuals. Life got better for some blacks after the 1960s. For other blacks, it got significantly worse. Life got better for some women after the 1960s. For many other women, it got significantly worse. And then what about the other groups outside of that who are affected by this expansion of rights? Rights expand for some groups. They diminish then for other groups. So this notion that, oh, Things were just brutal for blacks and for women and gays prior to the 1960s. And then after the 1970s, things have gotten progressively better. It's just not borne out. Some blacks, some women, some homosexuals, things have gotten better. For other blacks, for other women, for other homosexuals, things have gotten significantly worse. So the segment notes that in the entirety of the show's eight-season run, only one black actor had a speaking role. Guess what? There aren't many black people in rural America. Or rural Australia. There aren't, there aren't many black people uh, small town America or small town Australia. Right? I, I don't think there are a lot of Jews operating 7-Elevens. My, from my knowledge, most 7-Elevens are dominated by Indians. Right? So 
America, Australia don't break down on exact national demographics in every small town. So what was so horrible is a small town that's white. There are plenty of black TV shows that are just overwhelmingly black. Is that a bad thing? So Koppel interviews a black family who has lived in Mount Airy for decades and as of the early 1970s were turned away from eating in certain restaurants. Okay, so that is a restriction of your freedom if you're turned away from eating in certain restaurants. But with freedom of association, that means other people get to feel more safe and enjoy their rights of freedom of association. So by mandating that all restaurants serve everybody, you're destroying freedom of association. At the same time, you're expanding rights from certain oppressed minority groups. Some people seem to win, other people seem to lose. So generally speaking, since we've had this vast expansion of civil rights, we've had a vast decrease in freedom of association. Freedom with business, freedom we hire. So out of that has come less social coherence, less social trust, less social cohesion. Somehow, Mount Airy becomes more complex with each conversation, Ted Koppel says. Yeah, everything becomes more complex. Study. Mount Airy is a place where fantasy and reality is in intersex. Oh, yeah, of course. So this segues into the segment's defining scene on a tourist trolley. Ted Koppel decides to wave the political thermometer across the forehead of Mount Airy and asks how many people there thought the 2020 presidential election was a fair one. Only two out of about a dozen people raised their hands. Well, asking whether the election is fair is not the same as saying that voting fraud across the election. So both Republicans and Democrats can make a good case for why that election or some other election was unfair. That's saying an election was fair or unfair is not the same as saying that massive voter fraud decided the election. So I mainly talk to and hang out with right-wingers, and so I am most acquainted with right-wing talking points about how the election was unfair. But if I hung out with left-wingers, then I'd be more acquainted with left-wing talking points about how the election process is unfair. So one tourist says, I think there was a lot of voter fraud. And then discussion continues about the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill, that this was a stage event with Black Lives Matter people. And then this is a good point. I don't understand why they're focusing so much on January 6th, that one issue when there are so many cities being burned down every day by protesters. Right. I think that's a good point. We had Black Lives Matter rampaging through America. We had BLM and Antifa ruining the lives of millions of people, putting millions of people in a state of fear. And, yeah, I'm not sure why that doesn't get attention. So, Ted Koppel heard lots of positive feedback. And uh, people either loved the show or hated the show. Some thought it was a hit job. And uh, Ted Koppel says it's fine if you want to escape reality on TV, but complaining it with the world can produce damaging results. Well, everything can produce damaging results. Drinking too much water can produce damaging results. Uh, going to the hospital can produce damaging results. You could get some nasty infection. Uh, driving to the doctor can produce damaging results. You could die in a car accident on the way to the doctor. Everything can produce damaging results. So one of the tourists at the end of the segment says, I just hope when this airs, it won't show Southerners as a bunch of dumb idiots. Guess what? People, people most closely identify with their group don't really care about our groups. So people want to feel good. People tend to feel good when they're connected with members of their group. Right? So at the beginning of the TV show Yellowstone, 
I think an Indian man who says to a white man, till they find a cure for human nature, people are better off sticking with their own kind. So people, generally speaking, are much happier sticking with their own kind. People don't tend to care very much about our groups. That's... <laughs> you didn't know it. <laughs> but if there was anyone in the intellectual dark web, um, I realized after the Charlie Hebdo situation, it was you. And I viewed that as really heroic. And so on. It goes on. So, Matt, what do you think about that? Douglas Murray is the alpha and omega of the intellectual dark web. Yeah, all this patting each other on the back, intellectual dark web or elsewhere, and saying, oh, how heroic. It's uh, unseemly. It's un-Australian. Yeah, that's definitely how Eric sees him. Uh, Eric is not stingy in his praise and definitely looks up to... Murray and uh, yeah, sees him as a pretty pretty big deal. That's a fair fair summary. Yeah, and I would say there's a tinge of anglophone admiration mm. chucked in. Mm. So this is Eric uh, pointing out Murray's role within the British intellectual sphere. And here's the weirdest statement I can possibly make. If I just take the anglophone countries and I think about the UK as central um, to to the Anglophone uh, group, the Five Eyes, as you said, you're about the only voice that sounds like I remember and like I expected. Yeah. So I, we're going to get into why he's the only person that sounds like Eric remembers. And he's talking about intellectual giants of the past and mm. Christopher Hitchens. So on. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we shouldn't editorialize too heavily at the outset, but... I think we're going to hear a lot more of this, which is that Eric really does lay it on pretty thick with the flattery. And uh, I feel like he does come on pretty strong with the flattery. It's almost as if, I hate to be cynical here, but it seems like a strategy where he does see Douglas Murray as somebody with a lot of cachet um, and someone he wants to be flattered by and it feels a little bit like this is a way of building himself up by you know rubbing shoulders with the right people so we all fall into echo chambers and we all fall into groups that have some some courty aspects and that's no more natural healthy to some degree but we also need to have to step outside of ourselves and see what we look like from an outside perspective or hear how other people are hearing us so this is some pretty sharp analysis here from quoting the gurus, Douglas Murray, Eric Weinstein, can indulgent dinner conversation save Western civilization? Yeah, and like, I know we said we're not going to focus on Eric and we've started off by doing that. Oh my God. <laughs> but listen, there's a good reason because we're letting Eric introduce Douglas. And so as a result, you know, it's impossible not to talk about the intellectual bromance that is blossoming in front of our eyes here and yeah. i do want to highlight one thing and then we'll we'll we promise we'll move on to focus on murray is that uh the admiration it's not put on it's genuine because there's a couple of instances where eric actually starts imitating douglas's accent <laughs> and and that's a you know that's a indication usually of close friendship or 
admiration of the person. And uh, let, let me just play it for you because it was really noticeable to me. But I think yeah, I think that holds. Oh, yes, I guess it was after Shabbat. But it, yeah, but yeah. My, my point holds. Okay, that's one. You heard the, you know, oh, the, and, and this is the second one. And that's, that's the breakdown of the situation. By pussy, country. I should say that Douglas actually means cowards. Correct? Very much. So. Absolutely. Very much. In a very real sense. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the love is real, Chris. The love is real. I'm, I'm, yeah. just say I'm never going to imitate your accent, not in a million years. I, I'm waiting on this. Where is your <laughs> Belfast brogue going to break out? Um, where are my backpacks, Matt? Like, I feel after listening to this conversation that I really don't get enough praise in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, you, you could, you know, you could become a hero of mine. You just have to work. Have to. I have to work. Okay, so some good analysis there of indulgent conversation between Douglas Murray, and Eric Weinstein. So back to Mayberry and White America. So James Joyner writes for Outside the Beltway about this uh, issue, and he begins with a column from Washington Post. Writer, gay black man Jonathan Capard, who recently did a column, Why I Forgive Ralph Northam. So, Ralph Northam is the Democratic governor of Virginia who posed in blackface when he was in college. So, so Jonathan Capard, who's gay, he's black, he's doubly oppressed, he's doubly triple victimhood points, but he's intersectional. And he says, You know, Ralph, Ralph Northam didn't know the humiliation of blackface. It's not like the blackface is just objectively humiliating. I'm sure in some contexts it could be humiliating. Like if you call me a jerk, right? In some contexts that might be humiliating. Context it, it wouldn't be. Humiliating. So th- there's no there's no form of base pigmentation or uh, rhetoric or language that is universally objectively. Right? If you grounded in yourself. You are at ease with reality, right? You're not going to feel humiliated. So, what kind of person feels humiliated? Someone who is caught getting out of touch with reality, right? So, humiliation equals out of touch with reality. Usually, you've overestimated your own pull, your own power, your own talent, your own standing. Then you feel humiliated because you've been caught out of relationship with you walk around and you're not getting humiliated you are in touch with reality not perfectly in touch but generally in touch with reality right i get humiliated when i get grandiose when i get narcissistic when i get attention seeking when i act out get more and more attention right then then i get humiliated I've, I've lost touch with what's true, lost touch with what's real. So humility simply means accepting reality. Reality is I can't fly. Reality is I don't have a million dollars in the bank. Reality is I've got numerous vulnerabilities. So that's humility, simply accepting what is true, accepting reality. Out of touch with reality, you get humility. 
So Jonathan Capehart writes that uh, Ralph Northam was ignorant of the violence of the Ku Klux Klan. So people are supposed to walk around thinking about how other people are being oppressed. He seemed oblivious to the 1889 lynching of Magruder Fletcher. Really? So Ralph Northam in college, he was supposed to be walking around thinking about the 1889 lynching of Magruder Fletcher. So I'm supposed to walk around thinking about Jews who died in a pogrom in Eastern Europe in the 19th century. He seemed oblivious of the 1907 race riot took place in Virginia. What? So Ralph Northam in college in the 1980s was supposed to walk around with this sense of the 1907 race riot? So to atone, uh, Ralph Northam, the, the Democrat, read uh, Tart Nahisi Coates and Alex Haley. He watched Eva DuVernay's powerful documentary, The 13th on how an amendment to the Constitution led to mass incarceration of African-Americans. So, I mean, Ralph Northam's transgressions, such as they were opposing it in blackface, yeah, they seem like a fairly forgivable sin, right? Because when he did it, many of his fellow medical students were doing the exact same thing, and they were willing to be photographed doing it. Neither the yearbook editors nor the faculty advisors thought the publishing said photos were a bad idea, right? So that was the norm at the time. Norms change. So Jonathan Capehart is satisfied with Ralph Northam's left-wing policies, which have helped to transform Virginia politics. So because Ralph Northam has the left-wing politics that he wants, then he's willing to forgive his transgressions from the So with regard to the Andy Griffith show and its spin-off Goma Pyle, it's interesting not only were all the fictional Marines in the Goma Pyle show white, but many of them died in droves in Vietnam. Right? Many of the real-life Marines Goma Pyle is shown marching with and grinning with in the opening sequence of dying in. And uh, James Joyner writes here, on Outside the Beltway. I don't think the point of this is the fans of the Andy Griffith show a racist longing for the days of complete white domination of politics and culture. But uh, people people long for a time when, when being white wasn't derided, where there wasn't all this anti-white animus and where they trusted their neighbors, right? Into the 1960s, Steve Saylor remarks, you didn't have to lock your car in Los Angeles. San Fernando Valley, up until about the 1960s, you didn't have to lock your bike, you didn't have to lock your car, you didn't have to install all sorts of security equipment around your house. So, yeah, it makes sense to me. People would long for a time to walk the streets in safety. Like, I walk around in Australia, there's no fear. I I know women, girls who go jogging, right, at night or around Tenham Sands, down some lonely pathways. No fear. So why wouldn't people long times like that? Throw it a bit more. Yeah. And like, so we've talked a little bit off air about the fact that this conversation, it's a little bit hard to analyze because in some sense, it's a super indulgent four and a half hour conversation amongst two guys that are friends and who largely agree with each other. And 
as such, it's kind of like analyzing somebody's, you know, dinner table chat. <laughs> but, it, yeah, yeah. But, but the thing that elevates it beyond that is the claims that they end up talking about and the claims they make, right? I mean, this is the defense of our civilization. It's not just a dinner table chat. Yeah, like this is, I mean, you're completely right about that this is largely typified by emptiness. The conversation doesn't really go anywhere. And So if we're depending upon Douglas Murray and Eric Weinstein to save our civilization, uh, we're in trouble. And also, it's very easy to to like intellectuals who are arguing similar things to what we're arguing, but this this tendency, just because they're on the same team as us, doesn't mean that they're not fatuous. Right? Many people can be on your team still be quite shallow. Just sort of touches on things and then moves on to um, unrelated anecdotes and analogies. But this is exactly the kind of conversation that it feels like people will point to as the real serious talk where courageous people get get to grips with the serious issues. So we almost have to look at it to check whether or not they do or not. Are you saying long-form podcasting is the defense of civilization, the last line keeping us uh, from the barbarians at the gate? Is that what you're uh, implying? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm definitely implying that, definitely implying that. Well, okay, so let's let's move on and see if all these laudits, plaudits, plaudits, plaudits that that Murray is receiving are justified. So one of the topics that comes up early, um, which is a recurrent feature in a lot of the guru sphere that we look at, is the coronavirus and the response to it of institutions and elites, and in essence, the, the failure of that. So maybe I'll I'll start us off with a clip to get a taste of where Murray is coming from on this issue. I have this very concerning thought that the pandemic was a wonderful first period it was a period at first that was wonderful for science because it showed that science was a, was perhaps the only thing left that we trusted and that actually when the scientists appeared with the politicians then we thought okay they're serious this isn't like a newspaper columnist appearing with the politicians but then yes something happened all right we'll keep going oh that's it <laughs> no maybe the the follow-on clip would, would be necessary I, I didn't. I'm guilty of this. I didn't spend much time thinking about pandemics, if any. And so when it came along, I, I like, I think most people thought, well, I'll trust the people who know. I do have now a very serious set of questions. I think we probably all do and concerns, not least on the fact that, first of all, the people who I and most of the rest of the public trusted turn out to have been wrong in significant ways. Well, the people that we're supposed to trust with public health, they turned out to be wrong in some ways, and they turned out to be right in a lot of ways. So it's really easy to focus on where the WHO went wrong, where Anthony Fauci was wrong, where various public health officials were wrong, where various epidemiologists were wrong. But you have to also weigh that up with where they were right. And you have to take into account to one's thinking, what's the context in which they're operating? Because things are going down in real time. 
So they're dealing with an unprecedented pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen for 100 years. I'm thinking of things like the Imperial College study that predicted um, mortality rates at a level which you just haven't seen in any country. What They were predicting mortality rates if nothing is done, right? It's really easy to make fun of this imperial study, which uh, predicted two, two million dead uh, Brits. That's if there are no lockdowns, no restrictions, nothing is done. Whatever the country's policy is, you, know, you don't see it, these figures in Italy, you don't see them in Sweden. Uh right, you can look at me as the biggest idiot in the world. The person who's like consistently wrong, the person who consistently overestimates his own ability to understand things, the person who's a jerk, who's rude, uh, the person who platforms dangerous racists and bigots and anti-Semites. So you can like add up all the horrible, unappealing, disgusting things I've done. But to be fair, you have to then weigh that out with the good things I've done. So I've done lots of bad, stupid, idiotic, uh, destructive, unappetizing noxious things. And I've also done a lot of good things. So just focusing on where epidemiologists were wrong, which I think is a distorted lens to look through. We also have to look, where did, where did public health officials go right? Where, and what was known at the time that they were operating? Um, and it, when it turned out that those same people who I trusted and my fellow countrymen trusted had pulled the same... Did you trust them 100%? I, I, do people trust their doctors 100%? If it's important, why would you not get a second opinion? If it's important, why would you not do your own research? So I have a friend who's recommended a certain very invasive medical procedure, and he's having a hard time finding research on whether this procedure is a good idea or not. Well, you can't just go with what a doctor tells you. You can't just accept the president's going to tell you the truth head of the FDA is going to tell you the truth, or the head of the CDC, you have to think critically. So this idea of just trusting people, like who just trusts people in anything important without doing some critical thinking? So our public health officials were flawed, right? But they did some good things, they did some bad things, they were wrong about some things, they were right about some things. Same graphs out with BSE, for instance. I started to get a sense of... Uh, ennui about this oh that's a shame so why does he have a sense of ennui because he went from one unrealistic position to another he had the unrealistic position of oh i'm just going to trust these public health officials i just take it for granted i don't think about pandemics so i'm just going to trust the people who do think about pandemics are 100 right then he discovers that the people who do think about pandemics are not 100 right and then he's like oh i can't trust anyone now he has a sense of ennui so this is like People who put too much faith into other people get repeatedly hurt and then don't trust anyone. No, you have to have appropriate levels of trust in people. So you trust some people in some situations. So some people are going to be honest with your money, but they're going to be dishonest with your wife. Other people are going to be honest with your wife and dishonest with your money. So moral virtues are domain specific. So some people are courageous in a sporting field, but lack courage, say, in dealing with some tough interpersonal emotional matter. Uh, other people are honest in business, but they tend to be dishonest in the way they play golf or in the way they conduct their love life. So you have to have an idea what domain, what level of trust should I accord to someone? Yeah. So Chris, he's got serious questions and concerns that 
ultimately are giving him a feeling of ennui. I'll let, I'll, I'll let you go first on this, Chris. To take the reasonable position or the kind of strong version of the argument, right? Everybody acknowledges that various institutions and governments didn't react perfectly, right? Mistakes were made, policies were put in place that were counterproductive. And there's a range of debates that you can have about what the appropriate response is, right? It's a complex situation. There aren't one-size-fits-all answers. That I, I think that's a given. Sure, sure. But what Douglas does goes beyond that, and it strays into the realm of J.P. Sears and other people we've looked at, where he basically suggests that scientists got this completely wrong they expected this to be a serious issue, and it just hasn't turned out that way. So I noticed this type of thinking in the populist right. Uh, there's this inherent distrust of experts and then this kind of gleeful piling on when the experts get it wrong. Well, you have to put it in context. Where were they wrong? Where were they right? Just because uh, some experts made some mistakes doesn't mean you validate a, a whole profession. So sometimes the experts are right and sometimes the people are right, right? It's not like experts are always right or experts are always wrong. It's not like elites are always right and elites are always wrong. It's not like capitalists are always right and the workers are always wrong. And it's not like the workers are always right. And the capitalists are always wrong. And socialists sometimes are right and free market libertarians are sometimes right. It's not like free market libertarianism is the solution to every problem. It's like socialism isn't the solution to every problem. There's no one narrative that is adequate for dealing with the world around us. Sometimes big government socialists are right. Sometimes free market libertarians are right. Depends on the situation, the context. The virus is not as bad as predicted. People are overreacting. Mm. And basically scientists just have constantly revealed how, how wrong they are. And that's not true. <laughs> You've got that exactly the wrong way around. The public are currently thinking, we did trust the scientists. They turned out to have left. So just because someone speaks with an upper-class British accent doesn't mean that they're smart, right, or true. Led us into significant error. We're not listening to them again. Yeah. I mean, it, it's quite, at this stage, it would have to be um, the plague, a, a child-slaying plague, the Black Death, to make us listen to the scientists again. That's not true. No, I mean, given the situation... Scientists aren't a collective. Some scientists have done really well with COVID. Some scientists have not done so well. Just because some scientists made some substantial mistakes doesn't mean you then invalidate all scientists. Right? This idea that, oh, it'd have to be another Black Plague before we listen to scientists again. Scientists... They're a hugely divided group, right? You can't just make these gross generalizations now because some scientists got COVID wrong. We therefore we never listen to any scientists. That's insane thinking. This is Douglas Murray, it's supposed to be some powerful thinker. The number of people dying per day is it, the idea that the the science, the mistakes in the early modeling and so on led to an overreaction and overestimation of the threat seems just totally absurd to me. Like that seems like a terrible take. Is Am I missing something? No, I, I mean, especially now, right? Because we're in a period where the UK and the US and a bunch of other countries are 
are in severe difficulties and there's tens of thousands or in some cases hundreds of thousands of cases, right? So the claim that this worldwide disaster has not materialized is not true. It has materialized. It's already killed over a million people and infected. So the dominant scientific thinking, dominant academic thinking right now as reflected by The Economist is there are 3.4 times as many COVID deaths as are officially reported. So many people have died with COVID without being detected. So we've had approximately 5 million people in the world die of COVID so far. And The Economist estimates that the real number of COVID deaths is around Much more than that. And this is something which didn't exist a year and a half ago. And, and, um, and in fact, with 2020 hindsight, it's, it's obvious that the initial reactions, if anything, were an underreaction. We would have been better off doing things like having much greater controls on international flights much earlier. Things like that would have helped an awful lot. And we, we got there eventually after a few months. And countries like Australia are, with those controls, managing to avoid the large-scale infection and death that's happening elsewhere. So if he's, if he's hinting at the scientists causing um, an unnecessary overreaction, that just seems absurd. But the two things that kind of grated on me, Chris, is, is first of all, this thing that our friend Aaron at Embrace the Void has called cheap talk. And that's using these phrases like, mm, I've got these serious questions and concerns about such and such. Well, that's a very vague kind of statement and it covers, covers the whole gamut, doesn't it? It sort of hints that there's something fundamentally wrong. And Yeah, this I'm just asking questions is usually an example of a, of a dishonest approach. But if you've got an argument to make, make the argument. Don't, don't pose your argument in the form of questions because you're unable to substantiate your point. And, and all the experts are wrong and you can't trust the institutions and so on. But it also is vague and general enough to, to encourage. So no, I haven't found any alkaline water or essential water in Australia. So I'm sure it's out there. I'm going to keep looking. Compass of the whole spectrum of reasonable questions and concerns. Yeah. The the other thing the other thing that so what exactly is being said and not nothing really. And the, the second thing that's annoying is the is this holding the experts and institutions to a standard of infallibility. Right. If you hold anyone, you hold me, you hold Jim Bowden, you hold Anthony Fauci or any institution to an impossible standard, they will always fail you. So I notice a lot of people are invested having other people and other institutions failing them. We, we What's that theory that I, I just really got into? Self-verification theory. So if we have this deep feeling of hurt inside, we walk around expecting other people to hurt us more. If we, we have a negative self-view, we're not going to trust people when they tell us something positive about us. So we generally feel more comfortable with the treatment of ourselves that is familiar. If we were familiarized with getting treated badly as children, then as we grow up as adults, we'll be very likely to only feel comfortable when we're treated badly. And when we're treating well, treated well, this will make us uncomfortable. So it seems like about 70% of people have a positive self-image and about 30% of people have a negative self-image. And this, out of this third, we get the alcoholics and the sex addicts, 
and uh, psychopaths and the really dangerous people. So if abuse is normal to you, you will feel most comfortable in an abusive relationship. And if you have some kind of need to be let down, then set up standards for people where they let you down again and again. So we just constantly see this where, you know, it's it's obviously it was obviously a, a very novel, fast evolving situation, limited information, you know, the fog of war type stuff and the the picture. Guys, I'm only trying to foster a productive conversation here. Gradually clears as time goes by. Meanwhile, you have politicians talking a lot of nonsense in many cases, just terrible takes, right? Like, and you've got the the. So the Queensland government is not high IQ. So Queensland government came out when but AstraZeneca had a tiny number of blood clot resorts from its its vaccine, and they came out and said, "Oh, we've got to stop using AstraZeneca." So getting the AstraZeneca vaccine would have saved thousands of people from serious illness and prevented death from COVID. But because this infinitesimal number of blood clots that the Queensland government came out casting doubt on AstraZeneca, thereby uh, promoting essentially vaccine denialism and discourage many people from getting vaccines. The public armchair opinionators like, like Eric and Douglas giving any number of nonsensical hot takes but that's not the standard by which they're evaluating the scientists and the institutions. The standard that they're evaluating them at is just perfect infallibility. And and any Yeah, if you expect people to be perfect, they'll always fail you. Anytime you form any kind of connection with other people, you're creating the possibility that they will let you down. Because people will always let you down. It doesn't mean that you don't make friends, but it just means that you accept that just as you're human, other people are human. I last forgot a lunch appointment in 2001, right? I don't believe I've forgotten any lunch appointment or to get together in person since 2001, but I did forget one then. I also have forgotten some scheduled Skype conversations that I was going to have. So I'm about 99% reliable, but maybe I'm 97% reliable. But uh, if you interact with me enough, you know, there'll be a time that I'm, that I'll let you down in some way. Because to be human is to is to let people down. You expect people to always be just as you want, and you're going to go through life disappointed. Any mistakes, and there are mistakes and things that are wrong. That's what research is is like when you're doing it in a hurry. But they point those things out as if they're like a smoking gun, which they're just not, in my view. Yeah, and it's noticeable that there's a double standard where when it comes to discussing Trump, for example, and the information that he pumps out, they'll tend to take a very charitable view to say, well, he didn't actually say you should inject bleach directly. You know, that's an exaggeration of what he said. So the, there's charity available, but it it tends to flow along either right-wing partisan lines or another way to put it, would at least be along contrarian lines, right? If everybody is criticizing Trump for handling the coronavirus badly, then you will take the position that, well, actually. Mm. Yeah. And the point you made about the public and institutions, so here's here's a little clip uh, making the contrast that Murray wants to draw between those clear. We can notice that 
everybody who went on the protests doesn't appear to have spent the you know the succeeding weeks in bed gasping for breath this means that the people seem to know more the protests were overwhelmingly held outside so covid is about 40 times more likely to transmit inside than outside so it's not surprising that people went on black lives matter protests and tifa protests didn't massively transmit covid than everyone who's speaking to them, including those in authority, who are then left repeating a mantra that the public less and less believe. And uh, Angus makes the point, yes, the, some of the government in Australia created an enormous amount of doubt with regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So the risk of harm from that vaccine is infinitesimal. That doubt spread around the Anglophone world and uh, made tens of thousands of people more slow to get vaccinated. It, it, it does, is it striking if they, if they can't deal with the... the... And uh, Gandalf says the authorities have done nothing to earn my trust. Well, where in the world are authorities doing things to earn your trust? If the authorities have done nothing to earn your trust, it seems to me you have an unrealistic expectation of them. So you have, I would assume, safe drinking water. Right? You can go to the supermarket and buy food and it's highly unlikely that you get severe food poisoning. You can drive down a street that is probably relatively well-maintained. So authorities have done some things right, right? This idea that they've done nothing to, to earn your trust, I think you have an unrealistic expectation then. So where are authorities in the world acting in ways that earn your trust? America has problems, but where would you say life is much, 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 much better? Is the Swedish government so much better by its people or the Japanese government or the Chinese government or the English government? Like, there are countries that do better than America in certain areas, and there are other countries that do worse than America in other areas. Complexities. Um, it, 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 it's worrying when the institutions can't be as complex as the public are. So the institutions don't have the capability to mm. issue nuanced messages, but the public could certainly consume them. And I think that reflects, like, it is the case that sometimes... So when I went to visit some friends of the family who are in the late 80s, early 90s, we arranged the visit and they said, oh, by the way, you vaxxed. Yeah, I said, yeah, I, I'm vaxxed, triple vaxxed. And uh, Angus says, I have cousins in the US and Canada who will not get vaccinated. It's created a lot of tension in my family. It would otherwise be health nuts into yoga jogging. This is insane hysteria. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of anti-vax sentiment in alternative medicine, and among the populist right, and among segments of the populist left. Gandalf says, "No, nope, I only have realistic expectations of authorities. I won't follow and obey authority." Well, if you won't obey authority, you're going to pay some pretty stiff prices. So you will get thrown in jail, you'll be punished and obey authority in certain areas, whether or not that authority is worthy of loyalty. Uh, gravity works whether or not you believe in it. Police will work against you if you start violating the laws. Gandalf says, I have better judgment authorities than most. I'm a scientifically minded, skeptical person of a so 
in what areas do you think you have better judgment than most and what areas do you think you have worse judgment because none of us has better judgment yeah alternative medicine is often an alternative to logic and to science so i welcome evidence-based medicine even though evidence-based medicine for example throws up many challenges to 12-step programs so i appreciate the benefits i've received from 12-step programs but at the same time, I stay wide open that there may be other better treatments for addiction. And here's what the evidence says. That drinking problem, they may this pill, and that may solve their drinking problem. That may work better for many people than going to a... Messages are simplified down and don't provide enough nuance. But the notion that, for example, saying vaccines are not safe, but you should still take them, that first cause, for most people who don't understand what you're qualifying by saying not safe, right? And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't admit that there are side effects, but you, you have to be careful in the way that you word things, not to give the impression that vaccines are dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I think I must be in a, <laughs> I'm in a kind of grumpy mood this morning. So I'm this afternoon. So I'm probably less inclined to hold my punches here, Chris, because Honestly, their point of view is nonsensical. It seems like these guys would like public health messaging to be this like six-page technical document with definitions and caveats and, you know, these long, intricate explanations, all of this this nuance that they want. For instance, providing the nuance that, oh, you know, drinking water is technically isn't safe. Um, you know, that's terrible advice. That's just stupid. From public health messaging, yeah. From, from from a public health messaging point of view. I'm also going to say it's contradictory because when you look at the advice issued by the World Health Organization or the majority of public bodies in the coronavirus, the fundamental advice has been relatively sensible. Social distancing, good hygiene practices, they were ambivalent or maybe too hesitant when it came to masks because the clinical Evidence was mixed and they didn't want to create a rush on medical supplies, but but that was only for a month or two. And, it, you know, people take that as apologetics, but I see it more as, you know, as a, as a complete layman, as a person like Douglas and Eric sitting there. Yes, I think that public health bodies should have advocated mask wearing due to the principle of caution and because I'm in a country where it's normal. But I also can appreciate that when you have mixed clinical evidence and you have different cost-benefit analysis to, you know, what you put in your public messaging. So this isn't exciting analysis. This isn't making you go, oh, yeah, yeah. And now I know, you know things better and more clearly than other people. This isn't like super eloquent. It's not done with an upper-class British accent. But it's just eminent common sense. I mean, these guys are bringing the goods here that some bodies reach a different conclusion. And it doesn't have to be for nefarious purposes or for a desire to mislead the public. It can just simply be that they made a different judgment call. And you can criticize that, but you shouldn't act like it's inexplicable. Or, you know, Eric previously, and Douglas has done so in various articles, imply that it's due to a conspiracy related to China controlling the World Health Organization. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to play a clip of them specifically talking about the war. So I used to really enjoy the populist right because I agree with the populist right on limiting immigration and revising free trade to take more into account our, our own workers and our own industry. But with regard to COVID and with regard to the 2020 election, I just see the, the low intellectual level of much of the populist right. So I think the populist right has just had a really bad COVID. The, the conservatives and the right wing in general, because conservatives in America generally for free market, low government and things like pandemics, they require much more government intervention. And they require, they seem to require you know, more government restrictions and limiting of rights to to reduce the spread of a pandemic. Because with the pandemic, if you don't get vaccinated, if you don't obey common sense and uh, safety protocols, you're more likely to get infected. And if you then get infected, you're more likely to transmit it to other people. So where there are no externalities, I love a libertarian approach. But with regard to pandemic, and, and to many other things, everything we do affects other people. So then society has an interest, and so there is a stronger case to be made for government intervention in areas where there aren't massive externalities to transactions. World Health Organization, because I, I think it helps uh, clarify why we might be frustrated. A, a relatively small number of people knew that the World Health Organization was another of those international organizations that wasn't exactly what it called itself. But now a very large... The World Health Organization is a fallible agency. It is conducted by human beings. It has to take into account politics. Like China plays a major role in the WHO and a major negative role. That doesn't make the WHO completely useless. It is flawed and fallible and affected by politics like all institutions. A large number of people know that. Uh, and again, we have this issue of the residual institutional trust. Um, you, you saw this famous video. You shouldn't trust any institution blindly. You should assess what it's saying critically by comparing it with other sources of information. Just like if you get an important diagnosis calling for an invasive medical procedure, you should get a second opinion. With the, I guess, a Hong Kong journalist trying to ask this. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh I remember. I had uh, some soreness in a hip, and I had an appointment at Kaiser, and the doctor came in and he moved my leg around. He just did it very clumsily, and it like, caused me great pain. And he said, oh, you'll probably need a hip replacement in 10 years, and meanwhile, take some aspirin. Well, I went to a great physical therapist, and I spent like $200, $300, and I solved my hip problem. So does that mean that I just never trust doctors and only trust physical therapists? No, I recognize that... The doctor who saw me at Kaiser, he probably had 20 other patients to see in the next 90 minutes, and he wasn't necessarily super informed about dealing with sore or stuck hip. While when I went to a physical therapist who specialized in this sort of thing, and the great physical therapists won't take health insurance, right? And they won't work on a lean basis, right? But you go to a great physical therapist, they'll often help you with things that your ordinary primary care physician what you have to help you with. Different people have different levels of expertise. A person Absolutely. from the WHO and he's pretending that he can't hear and then she says, yeah. well, shall I ask it again? She's, he's like, no, let's move on. <laughs> That's right. And, and then he reaches for the, the kill button. Yeah. And he's, this is a bad magic show that I'm forced to sit through. Yeah. Every day. 
Um, uh, I know that's Eric bringing up that example, but I've heard it on so many of the podcasts we are listening to. That is a really good illustration to me because, you know, that's that famous clip that went viral where a WHO official was asked about Taiwan's response, right? And badly flubbed trying to avoid that question. It essentially tried to avoid making any political statement about the status of Taiwan and its response in comparison to mainland China. And it, the person who made that was somebody that was involved with mm-hmm. organizing the response or investigating the response in mainland China. Okay, the health official. Now, when I saw that, like everyone else, I saw how transparently the person was trying to avoid answering the question, mm. right? Yeah. But I also took that as, what did you expect? Like, he could have done it much better but this was just somebody who is a health specialist wanting to talk about the virus in an interview and get messaging across. And then he gets hit with a question which he correctly recognized could become a political talking point. And he, he tried to avoid it. So it's just to me, it's not remarkable. Mm-hmm. That's yep. completely understandable. Right. So if you press me about certain things that are very painful or where I'm very vulnerable... I may very well lie and deceive to you. I may try to get out of it. I may look like a complete jerk. That doesn't mean I'm a completely dishonest, unreliable, jerky person in all areas of life. But we all have our vulnerabilities. Like this one particular WHO official, he had a vulnerability with regard to China. He wanted to continue be able to continue to have access to Chinese data. And so, therefore, he couldn't acknowledge Taiwan. So when we have relationships that then compromises us in some ways. We, we give up things to be in relationship with institutions. Like when you have a job, you're going to have to be protective of your employer, and it may mean there are certain things you can't say off the job as well. All relationships, or jobs, or situations and positions will compromise us in different areas. Why someone would do that? But it was taken as, well, that shows that the WHO can't be trusted on anything. And you're like, no, that... that inference doesn't follow. Yeah, it seems like uh, the standard procedure for these kinds of conspiracy theories, it's a bit like with the American stolen election, so much rests on some video in some counting office or something, which purportedly shows something damning. But it only shows that if you've got these special goggles on, making a whole bunch of inferences, it's a complete non sequitur. So, yeah, I agree with you. I haven't seen that particular video. but that- Okay, so that's uh, Decoding the Gurus on Douglas Murray conversation with Eric Weinstein. So here's a topic I've talked about very often. Not born yesterday, why humans are less gullible than we think. Did not evolve to be gullible. So usually when we get information, we would will understand the information through our own biases. So generally speaking, information is not going to change people. On rare occasions, information will change people. But generally speaking, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. So the author of this terrific book, Not Born Yesterday, Why Humans Are Less Gullible Than We Think, is a French neuroscientist named Hugo Mercier. Herbert is extremely fascinating, interested and passionate about the topic of reason and rational thinking. And so I'm sure... He will be looking forward to this lecture with a tremendous amount of interest. Hugo? Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Anora. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, um, everybody who is uh, listening now. 
Um, so I will indeed talk to you about um, some of the ideas I have developed and, and summarized in, in the book Matt Born yesterday uh, about gullibility. And I will start by uh, a quote by philosopher um, Jason Brennan, who has a very kind of dark uh, view of, of gullibility and who thinks that people are very easy to persuade and uh, even if, if people don't really give them any good reasons. And he wrote um, that human beings are overly differential to authority, that they cower before uniform opinion, that they are swayed not so much by reason, but by a desire to belong, by emotional appeal and by sex appeal. So this is pretty uh, pretty dire. And indeed, it, it joins in that uh, long line of scholars and, and lay people alike who have thought that uh, humans were quite easy to influence. And not only that, but that once uh, once you have some some hold over someone and once you can make them accept false beliefs, you can make them uh, commit atrocities, as uh, Voltaire, uh, with some help from his translator, uh, is supposed to have said, whoever can make you believe absurdities um, can make you commit atrocities. So the, the view that I will be um, mostly kind of criticizing in this presentation um, can be summarized as uh, uh, along these lines. Uh, people are quite easy to persuade. They are gullible, um, even en masse. So even if you, you know, a lot of people can be persuaded at once, whether through advertising, through propaganda, um, um, through um, political campaigns. Um, and that is because broadly people are quite unable to judge who to trust and, and what to believe. And that as a result of, of this, people accept uh, a whole variety of kind of false, you know, asinine beliefs. And this can have quite dramatic consequences. And so what I will do now is uh, is try to show you that uh, all of this is wrong. And I will start uh, by the first point, looking at how easy it is to influence people en masse when you try to, um, to engage in mass persuasion to influence a lot of people at once. I will look at three examples, um, propaganda in an authoritarian regime, politi- political campaigns in the US, and advertising. So starting with propaganda, I will only look here at the, at the Nazi example because uh, it is, you know, in many ways the most infamous. Uh, it is also the, the one, uh, one of the best studied, if not the best studied um, um, case of propaganda. Um, historians, and in particular Ian Kershaw, have done quite a bit of work trying to understand whether Nazi propaganda had any effect. Uh, whether you know, it managed to sway the Germans uh, to what the, the Nazis wanted them to believe. Um, so to do the, uh, his research, Kershaw looked at diaries, public opinion reports, and various archival material to try to understand whether uh, whether the, the German population at large uh, was indeed influenced by by this you know, you know uh, flood of German propag- of Nazi propaganda. And his conclusion was that Nazi propaganda largely failed, except when it could uh, and I quote. Uh, build on existing consensus, confirm existing values, and bolster existing prejudices. So essentially, either the, either the propaganda was resting on things that the Germans already agreed on, in which case it could, you know, at the limit, um, at least have some success. But whenever it really tried to change their minds, uh, it mostly encountered failures. And since this kind of, you know, it's nearly 40 years ago, now these early um, qualitative conclusions by, by Kershaw, have been largely confirmed by a series of, of quantitative studies, of which I will just give you one example, um, a really kind of fascinating study by Maya Adena and her colleagues, in which they used the proximity with radio towers 
uh, to measure the exposure to Nazi propaganda. So a lot of Nazi propaganda, maybe most Nazi propaganda was, was carried by the radio, which was the dominant uh, medium at the time. And if you lived close to a radio tower, you had better signal, and therefore you were exposed to more Nazi propaganda. And the question is, does this increased exposure to exposure to Nazi propaganda lead you in particular to engage in more anti-Semitic acts, um, such as you know, denouncing Jewish people to, uh, uh, to the authorities? Well, what these authors found is that, indeed, um, Nazi radio propaganda did have um, some effect on anti-Semitic acts. However, uh, these effects of increasing anti-Semitic acts were only observed in, in areas that were already highly anti-Semitic and that had, be, that had been uh, highly anti-Semitic for centuries, um, and that it tended to backfire and so to have the opposite effect of that intended in other areas. So we really find the confirmation of, of Kershaw's conclusion that, um, you know, if people are already highly anti-Semitic, the propaganda might help kind of unleash uh, these, these sentiments, but that it doesn't really persuade anybody to become more anti-Semitic. And that is this really kind of revealing quote by uh, uh, Kershaw that he found in the reports uh, made by the Nazis who wanted to figure out what the German people were thinking, uh, this kind of like the equivalent of, of bullying, if you will, who wrote that uh, our propaganda encounters rejection everywhere among the population because it is regarded as wrong and lying. And we could, you know, multiply the examples. And even if you look at Stalinist Russia or other other examples of, of authoritarian propaganda, um, the effect seems to have been very limited. Um, turning now to political campaigns, um, as you know, political campaigns are a huge deal in the U.S. and a lot of money is spent uh, every year and especially every uh, every four years on political campaigns, uh, whether that takes the form of you know, robocalling, uh, canvassing, distributing flyers, paying for ads on TV or online. And so in order to study whether all of these campaign strategies are effective, political scientists have relied on, on various methods and the most reliable of these methods is to run experiments. Essentially, they would do an experiment in which, uh, for instance, they can divide a city uh, or they can use the fact that the city is divided into uh, electoral districts. So I think that's uh, that's fairly here. And in half of the electoral districts, uh, they will engage in one, one campaign strategy, such as canvassing or robocalling or distributing flyers or whatever. Or in any, sorry, and in the other half, um, they will do nothing. Or in half of the state's um, TV markets, they will play some TV ads and they won't uh, play these ads in, in, uh, in the other half. And then very simply, they look at uh, whether people in these areas uh, that have been affected by the, by the campaign strategy are more likely to vote uh, for whomever you know, the campaign was supported. And so recently, a couple of years ago, Josh Callan and Dave Brookman, uh, they looked at all this work and so they did a, what we call the meta-analysis. So they, they just look systematically at all the results that existed uh, in, in that field. And so, and so they found 40 such field experiments. And they added uh, nine original field experiments of their own. And on that basis, they concluded that the best estimate of the effect of campaign contact and advertising on Americans' candidates' choices in general, in general elections so essentially, whether all of these you know, campaign effects that had been uh, measured had any effect on uh, all of these campaign acts, had any effect on, on big elections and presidential elections, uh, the effect of these things is uh, zero on average. So you know, very small at best, uh, to put it nicely. 
and broadly, uh, this uh, this work finds that uh, and working political science generally finds that there are no effects of political campaigns in major elections shortly before election day. That we find small effects, like larger but still small effects, and campaigns that have or in votes that have weaker priors, such as ballot measures or primaries, in which people just can't decide to go for the Republican or the Democrat. Um, we do observe some effect of politicians' opinions on their followers, but only for non-attitudes, um, so things that people don't really care about, um, and that most of the influence is bottom-up, such that a public opinion quite heavily constrains politicians in what they say and to some extent in what they do. Um, turning to the next example now, advertising, uh, which really dwarfs by its, uh, by its budget uh, political campaigns. The way the um, efficacy of advertising, how powerful it is and how how much it persuades people um, is usually measured is by looking at its elasticity. So let's say you have a brand and they're already you know, running some ads in, in various formats. And the question is, if you increase the amount of money that is spent on ads or if you increase how many, how many ads are being run, uh, how much are the sales going to increase? And if the sales, let's say if you double your advertising, if your sales double, uh, then you have an, an elasticity of one. If you increase your advertising, uh, if you double your advertising, but your sales only increase by 50%, then your elasticity is 0.5. And the best uh, review that there is now of, uh, of the effects of TV advertising uh, is a recent paper by, uh, by Brad Shapiro and his colleagues uh, in which they've looked at hundreds of advertising campaigns and their conclusion is that um, a sizable percentage of they found sorry, a sizable percentage of statistically insignificant, so really, really so tiny that you can't make you can't be sure that they that they uh, exist, or negative estimates. Um, so, and to be more precise, on the whole, they find that um, the average elasticity is 0.01. So, on average, they find that if you double your advertising budget your sales are only going to increase by 1%. So the effect is absolutely tiny. Uh, so broadly, the effects of advertising appear to be um, small or non-existent. And indeed, that's been, in a way, kind of known for a while. And, and Gerard Tellis, one of the kind of gurus of advertising research, uh, put it in his book, uh, the truth, as many advertisers will quickly admit, is that persuasion is very tough. So we can see from these three examples and, and Really, they could be they could be multiplied, and we could be looking at religions or other domains with the same pattern we could obtain. And that mass persuasion, when you try to convince a lot of people at once with, with some kind of simple messaging, uh, persuades nearly no one. Uh, the only messages that have some uh, that do manage to spread are those that resonate with people's priors, so people things that people would already be inclined to believe, and so things that presumably would have little effect on them. Um, and that it is only when some trust has been earned uh, that some influence is possible at the margin. Why? Why is it so hard uh, to persuade people, especially to persuade a lot of people at once? Well, I think it is uh, because humans possess um, sophisticated cognitive mechanisms of uh, open vigilance, uh, or uh, mechanisms that we've also called mechanisms of epistemic vigilance. So how, how do these mechanisms work? Well, when we're told or when we read something, the first thing we do is we check the plausibility of the content given our priors, given what we already believe, given what we already know. So for instance, if, uh, if uh, Joan tells you you should buy this phone, the first thing you will do without even thinking about it 
is looking at whether that belief is coherent with what you believe. So if she's recommending an iPhone and you hate everything Apple, for instance, uh, then you will think that she's wrong. That is the default reaction. Anything that someone tells us uh, that doesn't fit with our priors, that doesn't fit with our beliefs, our intuition is to, is to think it is false. Fortunately, we have um, cognitive mechanisms that can allow us to overcome this initial rejection and to accept communicated information even if it clashes with our beliefs. So even if something that might seem surprising or implausible, under some condition, you will change your mind and accept it. And so, you know, what are we, what are the cues that you might look at uh, to decide what, to decide to accept something you would have initially rejected? Well, you look at whether the source is well-informed. Uh, so in the example we have, you know, has, uh, does Joan have personal experience with the, with the phone that she's recommending? Um, is the source competent? Is Joan someone who knows a lot about smartphones? Um, does the source have your best interests at heart? Uh, you know, is Jones, you know, a salesperson in an, in an, uh, in an uh, Apple store, or is she just a friend of yours? Are many people agreeing? Um, you know, if all of your friends are recommending the same phone, uh, well, maybe it's a good reason to uh, to give it a try. And are there good arguments? Uh, you know, is Joan able to explain to you why this phone is so good, you know, by appealing to its battery life or the quality of its camera or whatnot? And so a lot of uh, experiments and other types of evidence in psychology and other disciplines, uh, and even really you know, kind of common sense, um, tells us that um, as adults, we are well able to attend to these cues and to decide who to trust based on you know, how well informed they are, you know, whether they're with whether we think they're competent or not. What is more remarkable is that now um, some, some research over the past 20 years has shown how even very small children are able to take these cues into account in deciding who to believe and in deciding whether to, to change their minds when, when someone tells them something. And so what the research has shown is that um, at least uh, when they are preschoolers, so when they're you know, four or five or six, um, children are able to take all of these cues into account in some ways. So, for instance, uh, a five-year-old or even a two-year-old, to some extent, is more likely to believe and to act on the basis of what um, um, someone who is competent says. Someone who has been you know, repeatedly right in the past will be more persuasive to, to a very small child than someone who has kept making mistakes. And so we can tell for sure now that these, these abilities even though uh, you know it's a lifelong learning process, and we keep we keep kind of fine tuning them throughout our lives. The, the basic building blocks of these abilities to evaluate what people tell us are present uh, very very early on. So when we are in a situation in which we have all of this information, uh, then we do change our minds. So you know when you talk to people who you can trust, you know your family, your friends. Uh, when they talk to you about something that you know they are knowledgeable about, uh, you know, something within their, their, their area of expertise, and when you have time to exchange arguments with them, then people do change their minds. They don't, you know, they're not that stubborn, and, and you, can indeed, uh, you can indeed change their minds in the right situation. However, when these cues are absent, uh, so when we don't know really how competent the source is, uh, when we're not sure that they, that they have our best interests at heart, and we, when we don't have time to exchange arguments with them, then what happens is that uh, we become rationally skeptical. And so 
in the absence of any good reasons to change our minds, then we don't. We just reject the information that is communicated to us. And I think this is why most communication, most sorry, most uh, mass persuasion attempts uh, don't work. Is that you know when you see an ad, you have no reason to believe that the person you know, making the ad has your best interests at heart or really knows what they're talking about, and you can't exchange arguments with them. And as a result, you go back to your initial reaction, which is to reject uh, most attempts at persuasion. However, you know clearly enough, uh, I must admit that. This is only true as a rule, and that people have, over the centuries and you know, until now, um, accepted a wide range of false beliefs uh, that, that does appear to make them look gullible. And so the last point I want to, to look at is, is it really true that uh, believing these false things that, that people do believe uh, can really make us commit atrocities? And more generally, um, how bad is it to accept false belief? Is it really so dramatic and, and consequential uh, uh, than we often uh, we often believe to be the case? And I will argue uh, that on the contrary, most false beliefs um, that are widespread in the culture um, are held only reflectively. So I, I will explain by what, what I mean by this right now. And essentially, a belief a belief um, that is held reflectively is a belief that is held in good faith. So people can really say, you know, I I believe in this, and they're not lying, they're not deceiving anybody. Um, And yet that belief does not have the consequences that it should have if it were held in a more intuitively, more intuitive, kind of emotional emotional manner. And so I will just illustrate that. It's a bit abstract. I will illustrate that with with an example. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, will remember remember the, uh, the Pizzagate conspiracy theory uh, that was extremely kind of popular in, in 2016, and that to some extent kind of gave rise to the whole kind of QAnon uh, um, 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 universe. And according to that Pizzagate conspiracy theory, um, high-level Democrats were um, abusing small children in the in the basement of a, of a pizzeria in the, in the suburbs of DC. And if you look at polling at the time, so that it was uh, mostly in 2016 in the in the Trump versus Clinton um, and political campaign and kind of an election year. Um, if you look at polls at the time, it seems as if uh, many Americans and nearly half of, of potential Trump voters agreed that something like Pizzagate was going on, that, you know, there had been this, this, this whole kind of pedophilia thing um, um, ongoing among Democrats. And remarkably, uh, one of these of these believers in Pizzagate, um, Edgar Madison Welsh, uh, took his uh, his, uh, his big gun and he stormed the pizzeria. He drove quite quite a, quite a while. He stormed the pizzeria and he demanded that the children be freed. And uh, since obviously uh, there were no children, he uh, was put in jail. Um, but if, if so, and our, our contention here is that this person had an intuitive belief that the, that children were being abused. And if you, if you, in a way, if you really believe, if you intuitively, you know, emotionally believe that children are being abused, imagine you have seen footage of them being abused, um, then you know, actually trying to free them uh, is the right thing to do. So, you know, as as you know, kind of surprising and counterintuitive as it might seem, uh, that guy was was coherent. You know, he was he was acting on the basis of his beliefs. He thought you know the police was corrupt. And the only thing uh, that he could do to save these these, these poor children from being uh, abused is to do it himself. And that's what he tried to do. Um, and so then again, within his belief system, it is 
you know, the kind of the moral, the, the right thing to do. And now contrast that with, uh, with what was the overwhelming reaction to Pizzagate, uh, which was to do things like uh, leave one star comment, uh, one star com- comment, sorry, on the on the on the pizzeria's website, um, like this one who read that read, uh, pizzeria, uh, pizza was incredibly undercooked. Suspicious, professionally dressed men by the bar area that looked like regulars kept staring at my son and other kids in the place. Definitely not coming back. Uh, beginning to think the conspiracy about this place are true. And so here uh, we have someone who, uh, in our scheme, only has a reflective belief that Pizzagate is true. So he does, you know, he does think there's something going on, um, but his behavior is completely out of touch with the belief. Like imagine, kind of really, kind of intuitively believing that children are being held there uh, and being abused there, and yet you go to the pizzeria with your children, with your own child. You know, you go there, and then the first thing you do is you leave a one-star review. And the pedophilia is not even the first thing you mention in your review. Like you start by noting that the pizza was undercooked, which you know seems like a really kind of trivial thing by compare, you know, by comparison with the whole pedophilia thing. And so, even though obviously the vast majority of the people who did anything about Pizzagate uh, didn't, you know, tank that gun and try to free the children, instead uh, they only, uh, you know, wrote one star review or you know, told talk to news journalists or they just. They said that they thought it was true, but they didn't really do anything else about it. And that is really incoherent with, a, with a, an intuitive belief that, that children are being held. And so this is a pattern that we find across many domains. Uh, so for instance, conspiracy theories, of you know, Pizzagate is an example of that. It is crazy when you think of it um, that people are so vocal about their beliefs in conspiracy theories. You know, if you really believe that the NSA was was so powerful that it could uh, it could orchestrate 9/11, then surely they can kill some random person who is accusing them of that. Uh, and indeed, you can see that uh, when people really believe there is a conspiracy, or when they, you know, when there is an actual conspiracy, people tend to shut up, and it's really hard to get them to talk. And we see that with the whole efforts like that have to be made in order to make uh, whistleblowers um, actually blow the whistle. And the same phenomenon can be observed for fake news. Um, so fake news are bad, you know, I, you know, I, I don't mean that you know, for fake news, but uh, their effect is much less strong uh, than what many people fear. And in particular, people who accept fake news and tend to already have you know, political attitude that is compatible with the fake news they accept. And the fake news doesn't really have much of an effect. It doesn't really make anything worse. It's just, you know, it's just compatible with what they believe, but it doesn't change much. And uh, the other way we can tell that the belief is, is held reflectively is that the belief is mostly used to justify a behavior. So instead of causing the behavior, uh, we have the behavior, we want to engage in the behavior in the first place, and we only use the belief as a way of explaining and justifying why we engage in that behavior. And so to, to illustrate that, um, and we look at the example of bloodletting. Uh, so bloodletting is a practice of uh, that was popular for centuries and millennia in Europe and in the United States, of um, cutting someone who is sick, um, typically at the forearm in Europe and in the U.S., and letting um, some blood flow in order, presumably, to to restore the balance between the four humors. So the standard theory of bloodletting is that 
um, Gallen's um, humoral theory of disease had proven so popular that people started to bleed, to bleed their patients. And uh, most notably, maybe uh, when George Washington uh, developed a throat infection in the winter of, of 1799, uh, he, was taken to, uh, he was taken to bed and the best doctors of the day were, were brought to his bedside. And uh, they drained him of two and a half liters of blood, so about half his blood, um, after which he you know, completely non-mysteriously died. And so it seems to be a case in which we have a belief there, in, you know, a belief in the humoral theory of disease that has very serious and costly consequences. However, this is actually not at all uh, how things work. And we know that because uh, with some colleagues, we have looked at who practices bloodletting in the world, and we found something that is known by every, every anthropologist, is that something like half of the world's culture, uh, or maybe a third of them, uh, have practiced or practiced bloodletting in one form or another, even though none of them have ever heard of Gallon or the humoral theory of disease, and many of them don't even have any kind of theory for why, for why they practice bloodletting. And so what seems to be happening is that for various reasons, and drawing a bit of blood to cure an ailment is an intuitive practice, and that in some cultures people develop uh, an, a reflective belief, uh, a set of kind of complex theories for why that is a good practice, uh, but the beliefs have only very little impact uh, on the uh, on the practice. So it's really the practice is driving the belief rather than the other the other way around. And we see that as well, just in the in the medical field, with um, with anti-vax attitudes, so this this graph that you, you, you probably can see very well um, shows the if you if you look at the at the red line on each graph, this is the percentage of people who are kind of strongly anti-vax in in many many countries, and this is kind of across the years in, in many countries, and as you can see in just about every country, uh, there are you know a few percentage of the population that are strongly anti-vax. Uh, it goes from you know quite a few percent in France to, to practically nothing in, in other countries, but they exist essentially everywhere in the world. Uh, but what is striking is that the reasons people have uh, or people say they have to to distrust vaccination are different everywhere in the world. And so what that suggests is that then again for a, a variety of reasons people do not like vaccination. It's not an intuitive form of therapy. People don't like it as a rule. And then in different places, they will, just, they will use uh, you know, many different reasons for justifying this, this intuitive dislike. Um, so to summarize, um, I have been arguing that we are not gullible, you kind of far from it, uh, that instead we are endowed with efficient mechanisms of open vigilance. Um, these mechanisms uh, consider a series of, of cues and information uh, once we have all of that information at hand, uh, then things work out well. Uh, we know when to change our minds and we can accept, uh, accept good information. Uh, when we don't know, uh, when we don't really know who we are talking to, when we don't have time to exchange arguments, when we don't have these cues, we come back to a state of kind of rational skepticism when it's really hard to make us change our minds. And I think that this is why, uh, by and large, uh, mass persuasion fails to persuade. It is true, in, you know, indubitably that uh, some false beliefs do spread, uh, even though it's rare that they do through mass, they, they do so through mass persuasion. But um, these beliefs tend to be reflective, and so they don't really impact much our, our thoughts and our behavior. 
it's more the other way around. It's more we want to behave in such and such way, and, and then we adopt the beliefs that go with it. And that's something that I, I develop in the book. Um, these these reflexive beliefs also tend to serve some social ends, um, such as justifying our, our, our behavior. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. So that, that was really important. So people have behaviors and then they want to justify them. Or people want to burn their bridges with polite society to signal how committed they are to a cause. So people don't uh, go into, say, Holocaust denial because the evidence is just so compelling to deny the existence of killing 6 million Jews during World War II. People go into Holocaust denial to signal how committed they are to a distant point of view. And people not anti-vax because they are persuaded by the evidence. People are anti-vax because it's an intuitive feeling that you don't want to get jabbed uh, some some substance that, that may have or is thought to have some element of a virus. It's the most normal, intuitive human reaction. So people aren't being persuaded by misinformation by Joseph Mercola or that Kennedy dude or any of the anti-vaccinating websites. That's not what's driving anti-vax sentiment. Anti-vax sentiment is normal and natural. We don't want to get jabbed. Then people may go do some research to justify their behavioral choice to not want to get vaxxed. So too with you know fake news leading people to support Donald Trump. No, it's that people who want to vote for Donald Trump are unable to find much of a case for voting for Donald Trump in the mainstream media. But then people go seeking for uh, alternative sources of information and media that would justify a vote for Donald Trump. Also, most many people's religious and political and cultural beliefs are just reflective. They're just reflecting that the crowd that they belong to or want to belong to, the people generally take cues about what religious and political beliefs they should have from their peer group or from the group they aspire to join. They choose their beliefs on what's cool or not. They're not really looking at the evidence. So people can be a Christian and it doesn't necessarily have any effect on their behavior. People could believe in witchcraft, doesn't necessarily have any particular effect on their behavior. People can believe in QAnon, but it's a reflective belief because it's a belief of their peer group, but doesn't actually have any behavioral effect. So if you think that 9-11 was an inside job conducted by the NSA, you wouldn't be going public with that theory because the NSA is so powerful that you'd be afraid that they're going to zap you. So this is an excellent, very important book, Not Born Yesterday by Hugo Mercier. A little bit more from Decoding the Gurus on Douglas Murray talking with Eric Weinstein. Kind of reasoning and complete overblown interpretation of a relatively innocuous event is very familiar to me. Yeah, and in case people think that we're being unfair and reading too much into the sentiment that is being expressed, like you could read it as well, you know, look, they're just being critical of institutions. Don't you defend the status quo unthinkingly. So let me just illustrate how strong their anti-institutional sentiment goes. And then you get on to the institution one, which is that nobody, as you know, nobody in an institution now can tell the truth. And it's slightly worse than that, which is that... I'm used to my saying stuff like that and then people calling me an extremist. Do you believe what you just said? Yes, I mean, I, I don't doubt I mean, that there my, are some... My, my, my phrase is almost everybody 
particularly in an institution, is lying about almost everything, almost all the time. That's where I believe we've gotten. Right. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in the in the previous clip, um, Douglas uh, uses that uh, cheap talk, um, hedging his bets. He, he uses the phrase, "Oh, we realized the WHO wasn't exactly what it called itself." You know, it's this nice vague language. But yeah, it's nice for them to be explicit. They <laughs> they they're nice and explicit at least sometimes. Well, that's in the third or fourth hour, so I think many people have tuned out correctly by then. But they, you know, at the beginning, they're not that explicit. But I thought that is just that just summarizes the anti-establishment, anti-institution. Right. So, if you're anti-establishment, anti-institution, populist, dissident point of view is using really weak arguments and cheap reasoning, then even if you agree with people engaged in this, you still got to have contempt for their weak arguments and cheap reasoning, right? So the people who operate decoding the gurus are center-left, right? And their worldview is essentially like the John Lennon song, Imagine, right? They're not religious. They they wish for a world where there are no in-groups or out-groups, right? So they have a point of view very different from mine, but that doesn't mean that they can't provide some important analysis of really cheap, dishonest reasoning, Reasoning here by Douglas Murray and Eric Weinstein. You no know, philosophy of gurus and Douglas and Eric Sherrod, the difference is just in the tone and the way that they express it. Eric is more direct. Yeah. But the, the sentiment is the same. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it, it's very, it feels very self serving as well because it relates to their previous point, which is that the institutions, the experts, won't pay the public enough credit and won't, won't give them enough credit um, and respect their intelligence by giving them, you know, a sufficiently detailed and nuanced account. So with regard to immigration, I believe the populist, popular view, less immigration is correct. But with regard to how to deal with COVID, I think on balance, the experts have been more right, popular approach. All right, I want to go to an article in The Spectator. The modern economy is built on addiction. Late capitalism seeks to exploit addictive behavior. So your eyes may glaze over when you hear the term addiction, just like for other people, their eyes just glaze over when they hear the term God or, or religion. So I think addiction is a powerful model for explaining a lot, a lot of life. But uh, if addiction doesn't work for you, then there are other models, right? So... I know with my 12-step work or just in my interactions with people, I get sick of how people use the word God. Like people use God just to justify whatever they want to do and to escape from taking responsibility for their choices. So sometimes I, I set a limit on people. It's like, okay, enough talk about God and, and religion. With some people, everything comes back to God and religion. And sometimes I just put a stop to it. I say, you should be able to make your point just using secular reasoning. So, you may be absolutely tired of all talk about addiction, and I, I understand that. Just as I get tired of God talk, sometimes in my 12-step work, I suggest to people that they substitute the word reality for God. Not because I don't believe in God, but I think it's important to use different language. And uh, Driss says, this is what happens when you don't punch right. Yeah, if people on your side are using really weak, dishonest argumentation, then... Uh, then I'm going to call it out if I've got the energy and the time. Right, so here's an article in The Spectator by Sam Blythe. Two stories side by side in the Sunday paper I was looking at online. The first, 
strip Dame Dopesick of her title. There's a report that the families of victims of opioid addiction were campaigning for Dame Teresa Sackler, whose family profited unimaginably from marketing addictive painkillers, be stripped of her title. So there was a great Hulu eight-part series, Dopesick. Gotta watch it. The second was the story of how the writer and TV presenter Richard Osman spoken on BBC Radio 4 of struggling with an addiction to crisps, chocolate, and biscuits for four decades. He compared his relationship with food to an alcoholic's with booze. The addiction is identical. Well, there may be ways that the addiction to certain foods is identical to addiction to alcohol. So just because you can find similarities between two things does not also mean that there aren't gigantic differences. Like, I can find similarities between you and Hitler, right? You're both human beings. Both love your people. Right? You both want to make a better world. But just because I see these similarities between you and Hitler doesn't mean I also can't come up with a large list of ways that you're different. When you say that two things, two people, two processes are similar, you're not denying that there may also be enormous room for differences. So there's a school of thought that sees no connection between these stories, thinks it is ridiculous to compare a luminary of light entertainment struggling to resist scoffing a four-pack of Mars bars, the jonesing Oxycontin addict, or a long-haul alky shuddering into withdrawal in a long walk. There is a school of thought that thinks there is no such thing as addiction at all, that it is simply a failure of willpower or backbone or self-control, a medicalized alibi for selfishness. So my approach to addiction, like my approach to most things, is whatever works for you. Right. So for me, the addictive 12-step approach to many impulsive behaviors that I've been engaged in, that was a benefit to me. But for other people, there may be much more powerful and effective language and procedures. And sure, it's true that addiction is a tricky concept to pin down. So my approach to addiction is if there is an area of your life that's not working for you, there may be an addiction operating there. So an addiction is when you're continually engaging in the if you're harming you, can't stop it. That's that's my addiction of definition of addiction. So in uh, Martin Amos's memoir Experience, Martin Amos, the famous English novelist, son of the famous English novelist Kingsley Amos, Martin describes finding his father mouth so crammed with sweeties he looked like a basketball. What? Nas was going on. It took him about 10 minutes of disciplined mastication before he could reply, seems to calm me down, he said, and started loading up again. Right, I feel like there's some sort of addiction going on there. The Kingsley Amos ate for comfort, ate for the tranquilizing effects of starch and glucose helped to allay fear. So if you can just deal with your fears and anxiety in a more healthy way, I think you'd be better off rather than cramming your mouth with sweets. Uh, Rob says there are people in the regime purposely allowing fentanyl over the border. Well, we can control our border, right? We can control our border. It's just a matter of will, right? If the politicians wanted to control our border, they could control our border. So yes, if they're letting in illegal immigrants or fentanyl, that is a choice. So can control the American border. And we have not had a controlled American border for decades why? Because politicians chose that. Whatever they say, they chose to not control them. 
So Sam here writing in the spectator, I write as one who has had his own brush with booze, three years sober, and whose breakfast vodka habit gave way cheap chocolate, nicotine, video games, anything else that can give a bang of dopamine for a moment out of time. So yeah, when I quit pornography, when I drew from sex and love addiction, I started acting out in other ways, particularly posting crazy stuff on Facebook. So maybe like live streaming is my substitute for sex and love addiction and porn addiction. Don't know what dignity in recovery looks like till you've seen me get on the outside of a family-sized bar of dairy milk marvelous creation. So it seems to me that if you're going to quit, start quitting your addictions, quit one, usually others spring up. So you put your priority on the addictions that will kill you first. Underrunning will kill you first, or dating will kill you first, or alcohol will kill you first, or sex addiction will kill you first. You should give the priority to combating that addiction and then recognize that other addictions will spring up. But there was a time when people thought addiction did in a substance, such as heroin, and in talking about addictive painkillers, all right? Then they wondered about patterns of genetic predisposition, about addicts processing substances differently, about addiction as a disease that marked the drunk or the junkie, separate from less heard of the normal. So I think about 70% of people think of themselves positively, and such people are generally addiction. Then 30% of the population that thinks of itself negatively, which is probably about 50% of my live stream audience probably thinks of themselves negatively. Therefore, they're isolated from other people. Therefore, they spend more time online. Substitute our relationships for real relationships. Right? There's going to be a vast amount of addiction, negative self-image, trying to get away from the misery that is being them. So... Over the past 50 years, we've had a growth offset programs for behavioral addictions, process addictions. So the current thinking is there's substance addictions like alcohol addiction, cocaine addiction, it's process addictions, gambling, self-harm, sex, job. So process addictions seek to medicate fear, sorrow, boredom, regret, anomie, heartbreak, and it's the desire, essentially, to just take your eye off the ball. Right? Call it a spiritual condition. You can call it a neurological one or a psychological one. So the mechanisms of addiction, craving, overconsumption, dependence, shame, furtiveness, the chasing of irretrievable or imaginary highs, the diminishing returns of the old reward loop, right? those are the characteristics of addiction. So, for example, gambling makes me high. My gambling has virtually no effect on my brother. My brother is not an addictive personality. I am an addictive personality. Virtually all forms of excitement are somewhat dangerous for me. Televised sports is dangerous for me. Doesn't mean I never never watch TV sports, but I know I need to keep a limit on it. So there are certain addictions where you can't just completely abstain, such as food addiction. Obviously, you're not going to quit food. So the biggest tech companies are built on the psychology of addiction. Well, is that true? Because I think many people can use Facebook without it harming their lives. I use Facebook uh, maybe 15 minutes a week. Right? I, I don't feel like I have a Facebook addiction that's out of control. I can go offline for 24 hours and I get emails. Some people, they get a craving for that next notification, that next retweet, the ping of an incoming email, fulfillment of moving to another level on Candy Crush. 
right? That's the third of the population with a negative self-image. These are just vanguard refinements in the limitless digital space in an economy built on the queasy high of retail therapy, fast fashion, and sugar-laden treats. This is just late capitalism creating new and impossible to satisfy desires. Well, I think uh, most people can participate in technology without a disabling action. So, completely different perspective here in Atlantic from April 2015. The irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. This faith-based 12-step program dominates treatment in the United States, but researchers have debunked central tenets of AA doctrine and found dozens of other treatments more effective. So here's a good example. Here is an argument that runs contrary to my point of view. I love the 12 steps. I love the big book. 12 steps is how I've reorganized my life over the past 10 years. But I also love evidence. I love evidence-based medicine. I love what is true. And so even though I believe in God, that doesn't mean I'm just going to dismiss, for example, Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species and the Theory of Evolution. And just because I believe in the 12 steps doesn't mean that I don't think that there may be other treatments for other people that are more effective. I want to hear this argument. So it talks about how everyone who's an alcoholic, they, they tend to get shifted towards AA. But particularly as an atheist, they may get put off by the faith-based approach of the 12 steps, five of which mention God. Everyone in the AA warned him that he had a chronic progressive disease and that he listened to the cunning internal whisper, promising that he could have just one drink, he would be off on a bender. So that's the AA approach. But there may be other approaches for other people with this problem that are more effective. So this particular alcoholic says it was this message. There were no small missteps and one drink might as well be a hundred that sent him on a cycle of binging and abstinence. Felt utterly defeated. Now, according to the big book, which is AA's Bible, rarely have we seen a person failed who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program, especially men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. So, my favorite teacher of the 12 steps right now is a guy on YouTube by the name of Herb K. He used to hold uh, weekly lectures, sessions in Los Angeles, which, which I went to. And on uh, Okay, so just uh, so step up. Itself. That's the mission of step eleven to improve our conscious contact with power. Okay, so this is the twelve step approach that. If you have disabling addiction, you need a power greater than yourself. Because all the things presumably tried to overcome your addiction haven't worked. So where do you go for power? You go to a higher power. And steps 10, 11, and 12 are the power steps. So 10 is making a daily inventory to make sure you're keeping your side of the street clean. Where do you, where do you owe amends to other people? Step 11 is trying to increase your conscious contact with higher power. 
means prayer, meditation, study, other practices. And then step 12 is you carry the message to those who are still suffering. These are the power steps. These are the steps that help you gain the power to overcome the self behavior deviled you. And then next week, step 10, we'll take a look at the big book instructions on that tool, quite frankly, for emotional sobriety. So many people such as myself have found 12 steps as being the most effective tool for emotional sobriety. I've had 10 years of psychotherapy. I've found 12 steps to be much more effective. Being religious almost all my life, I find 12 steps much more effective at attaining emotional sobriety. But other people, I think, just naturally, genetically, socially, um, have emotional sobriety. They don't need to seek it. Other people will find it from cognitive behavioral therapy. Other people will find it from yoga. There are many paths to emotional sobriety. It assumes that you've done the first nine steps. We're kind of short-circuiting that, being kind of innovative and creative by taking on the tools of meditation and inventory, daily, spot-check inventory, so that we can stay as clean and as filled with the Spirit while we're looking at our journey in step one. That's the whole point of this approach to the step process. I was four years sober when I did this work. I had completed my first eight steps. I was beginning to work on my ninth step, making the amends, and the man followed the directions in the big book, which says, commence this way of living as we clean up the past. We commence this way of living, 10, 11, and 12, as we do step nine. So as I began to do step nine, he gave me instructions on 10, then the instructions on 11, and then the instructions on 12. Because he knew that doing step nine required as much power as possible, and therefore we engage in those tools of power. When we came to step 11, he asked me to do what I asked you to do. And that is look up the term meditation in a dictionary. Many of you have a meditation practice. You may not call it that. You might call it quiet time. You might call it prayer time. You might call it contemplation time. So this guy, Herb K, asked uh, someone in the program, when did the meetings become the program? Because normally the meetings are a supplement to the program. The program's working steps. This guy answered him, 1976. So apparently that's when uh, rehab became a business. The 12 steps became a business. Court started sending people to, requiring them to go to 12-step programs. So attending, attending meetings became a business. So from... from book perspective, working the 12 steps is the program of recovery. Involved many people to just going to meetings. Somehow that will bring about recovery. Um, you might call it mindfulness time. You might call it spiritual time. It doesn't matter what you call it. Okay, let's get a little uh, Brown. Crisis management, take one. So, what's this about the cuck article? Wow, I am 
Really glad you brought that up. Uh, kudos to you because I have been wanting to talk about this for a long time and it has been very difficult, but that article represents the darkest period of my life. Porn addiction, sex addiction, drug addiction, you name it. I was in a downward spiral. I was dealing with trauma in the worst way imaginable. I was hurting myself. And even though I wasn't doing anything illegal, I was hurting other people. In some ways, I consider those things that I was doing, even though they were perfectly legal, to be worse than murder. Because it wasn't something that killed my body, but it was something that killed my spirit, something that killed my soul, destroyed my sense of who I was, my masculinity. And I got to the lowest point in my life. And if you go back and read that article, I have to warn people, you will be nauseous. It is disgusting. And... After I wrote that article, even though in that I try to justify it, I try to make it seem like, oh, I'm the alpha male, I'm the apex male. It was all a lie. It was self-deception. And when I went to bed that night, I cried myself to sleep and I said, God, help me. Because I couldn't do it myself. I was at my lowest low. And I'm so grateful to the people who helped me realize that there were two options. Either I continue on the path I'm on, porn addiction, sex addiction, drug addiction, and there's only one way that can end up, and that would be overdosing and taking my own life. The other option was I was going to have to leave that life behind. I was going to have to die to myself. I was going to have to completely change and do a 180. If I wanted to have any chance of survival. That's how desperate it was in that moment. And the only reason I'm standing with you here today is because I chose option two, but it wasn't alone. I didn't do it by myself. I had the help of so many great people, influences, and mentors around me who cared about me, who really wanted to make a difference in my life, who believed in me when I wouldn't believe in myself. And so that's why I do the work I do today, not because I'm better than other people, not because I was born a macho man, quite the opposite. I was, I was in the worst possible state you can imagine. I did, the, the again, the worst possible things that you can do without breaking the law. And today I can look back on that and I can be just as nauseous as everybody else. But I also look back on it and I... I can laugh about it because I know that's not even me. That, that guy who wrote that article and the man I am today, we're not even the same person at this point because I was so twisted, so perverted, I had lost myself. And through the techniques that I share through my programs and podcasts, I found a way to find that true self that was hidden under the perversion and, and the trash. So kudos to you guys, because, you know, this has been on my mind for a long time and I haven't known how to bring it up. I've been doing this work for years now of, of trying to 
to take the men who I think are in the same path of destruction that I was and try to teach them those lessons so they can turn around before reaching rock bottom. Because it's better to learn through others than to learn through your own experience. I don't want anyone to have to go through what I went through. You know, if I could delete that article from the web, uh, from the internet, maybe I would. It's not possible, right? It's out there for everybody to read. You know, if I could erase that part of my life, maybe I would. But on the other hand, maybe I wouldn't because when I look back on that time in my life and I look at where I am today, it gives me hope for every one of the young men who joins my programs where they may have no hope in themselves. But I say, if I could do it, if I could change you can too. So, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys letting me on this platform, giving me the opportunity to talk about this. It is such a difficult subject, but it needs to be talked about. Okay, that's Kenneth Brown. Okay, what do we got here? It's funny. I mean, come on, man. Like a manosphere grifter hmm? who turns out to be a cuck and an amateur porn star. Yeah, I mean, this is just, this is just, you You can't script this shit, okay? This is real life, okay? I mean, I used to be a professional writer. I used to work in fucking Hollywood. And I'm telling you, man, this kind of shit, you can't script it. It Only reality can bring you stories like this, man. It's fucking funny, yeah. So before I get going, um, let me just make sure that you all can uh, see and hear me and all the rest of it. So why don't you hit me with a plus? Those of you who don't know who Tiffany Dober is, well, Google her. It's not that fucking hard now, is it? Huh? You got fingers. You got a brain. Go on uh, the Internet, Google it, and find out where is Tiffany Dober. Because she hasn't been seen for a fact since December of 2020, over a year ago. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So anyway, let's get started. I'm going to leave that crawl up there. For the whole broadcast. And if you don't like it, you can fuck off. You can go away and, you know, jerk off or, you know, you know, torture little gerbils or whatever the fuck you want to do, you know. But I am going to leave that crawl right there. I'm going to minimize my face. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll wink out. I mean, you guys, you fuckers don't really need this information that I'm going to be discussing is publicly available. It's out there, right? And it's just fucking funny. But anyway, so this shit is out there. Uh, I don't have any kind of insider information. If you're looking for that, you're, you've come to the wrong place. But I did come across some juicy tidbits. <laughs> and I'm going to be playing them, man, because it's just fucking funny. Yeah, And if I do a lot of coach laughing, well, it's because it's fucking funny, man. I, Jesus, right? Now, a lot of Internet celebrities are talking about the story. I would argue obsessed by it, as I was, you know, as I am. Quite frankly, I mean, come on. For me to 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 um, motivate to do this whole fucking presentation, yeah, fine, sure. You know, it's a dead week between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah? But still, I've got other better shit to do. In fact, I was, uh, y- you might have noticed my shirt. I'm all like dusty and shit. Let me, let me just uh, show you dumb, dumb losers. There I am. Hang on. Um... I don't know if you can see me. I'm all like dusty and shit because I've been like uh, fucking around on my monster desk, you know, uh, uh, same area of the manosphere, though I personally have tried to stay away from them uh, because, uh, let me see, like, uh, wow, it's going to come up on five years ago, four years and change. I was interacting with some MGTOW guy. MGTOW is also part of the manosphere. 
And this MGTOW guy, he was like living out in Thailand. I forget the name of the guy, but he had MGTOW in his name, right? And uh, we we're talking and I did a live stream with him. And this was back when I was a small channel. I mean, like, uh, like 5,000 subscribers, something like that. And uh, this guy, we got to talking and he was like living out in Thailand and, and he was telling people, don't get married. Marriage is evil, blah, blah, you know, all kinds of shit. And then I asked him, you know, well, what's your personal life? And he's like, oh, I'm married. I have a couple of kids. And I said, wait, 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 but you're telling everybody not to get married and so forth. And then, you know, very quickly and without me even really pushing him, it just came out that he's basically pushing a big grift, just making money off of his audience uh, and, and telling them not to get married and how MGTOW is the only way, men going their own way, you know, fuck women, all that shit, right? But he himself was not living uh, up to those precepts. I mean, that kind of opportunism, there's a lot of that in the manosphere. I mean, a lot of it. And a lot of people who, I mean, such as myself, uh, we kind of like despise that. Uh, I mean, you guys know, and if you don't, I'm here to tell you that I started my channel because I wanted to do videos for my kid. Uh, because I have a small son. Right now he's six years old and I'm 53. And so the odds are pretty good that I'm going to be either senile or dead by the time he's a grown man needing some good advice. And that's why I started doing my... Um, my videos and I was planning on, on shutting the whole thing down back in 2018, but then the channel took off and then, you know, it, it just started getting like a grind. And that's why earlier um, or late last year in November I mean, of this year, 2021, I, um, I deleted all my channels and I'm trying to figure out what exactly I'm going to be doing, but that's not important. The important thing is that, see, uh, the manosphere in general is not really liked even by some people such as myself who are a part of it, you know? Because there's opportunism. There's a lot of rabid but insincere misogyny, okay? And the reason that they do this is to attract teeny boppers and insults. Why is that misogyny? Because misogyny is e easy. Misogyny is just part of being human. Like, uh, hate other people, we hate other groups, opposite sex. It comes easy. Sometimes it serves us and sometimes it doesn't, right? You want to hate anything that threatens to destroy what you love. Hate is just the opposite side of love. But sometimes the hate gets out of control. It's toxic. And, and think of it, you know, a guy goes on YouTube and starts uh, saying women are all whores and blah, 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 and just shitting on them. And they're all evil and they have all the power and they're fucking everybody over. And that's how they try to get an audience. And this happens all the time. We're probably wired to distrust that which is different and unfamiliar. Strangers are universally unpopular. Right? Even the angels don't, don't be strangers. So wired in a way that that which is unfamiliar, that which is different, you're going to have some negative feelings about. And that's normal and natural and even to healthy when those negative feelings metastasize into just full-blown genocidal hatred that probably doesn't serve you then there's a lot of uh what i call macho macho men okay and they're bullshit you can spot these so it probably serves you if you're jewish to probably have how would you not have some negative feelings about christians and muslims christian it would probably serve you could you not acknowledge some negative feelings about jews and muslims and if you're muslim how could you not have some negative feelings about christians and jews you're black, how could you not have some negative feelings about whites? You're white, how could you not have some negative feelings about blacks? So, mild in-group preferences, moderate in-group preferences probably generally serve you. 
but when the mild to moderate ingroup preference you know metastasizes into just full-blown outright hatred of all other groups right that probably does not benefit you these fuckers a mile away because the first thing they say is you have to lift 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 fucking retards if you ask me you know i mean it, it's so fucking cringe and stupid how much do you lift fucking idiot i don't define my worth as a man or a human being by how much i fucking lift you imbecile i mean these fuckers right they're just ugh. i i can't really stand them okay because self-improvement is perfectly fine i'm not against it. of course not that'd be ridiculous and self-improvement by way of lifting weights and and whatnot perfectly legitimate and perfectly fine but to claim that you are worthless unless you do you know, X number of reps of whatever weight or whatever machine or whatever the fuck that's stupid. Okay. Funny. Uh, let me see which one would be better this one or that one. Okay. Let's do that one. Okay. Fine. Okay. Uh, no, you know, I don't want, I don't want to show my face on camera because then, you know, not only do I not know him, I offered him to come on my channel to go through everything, to go and have a discussion on this, on this shit. Okay. I have not heard back from him, and let me be real fast, just to be absolutely positively sure. And um, nope, he has not responded. Although he has, I can see that the little check mark there is blue. So he did see the messages that I sent him, but he has not responded. Fine, I mean, shit, the biggest podcast on the planet, Joe Rogan, he got big because of his guests too. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that business model. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, see, Jack Murphy here, John Goldman, okay, so he is getting big by bringing on guests, and some of them are pretty big, okay? Um, but the thing is, see, at the same time, he has this uh, membership website called The Liminal Order. The Liminal Order is going to teach you how to be more masculine, okay? Now, th that's different from just a regular podcast who brings on good guests, like Joe Rogan. I mean, Joe Rogan is not selling you some program to. So off the top of my head, my, my definition of masculinity is taking responsibility. Right? Paying your bills, paying off your debts and uh, doing your job and contributor to your family, to your community. To be like more masculine like Joe Rogan, right? I, I mean, whatever you might think of Joe Rogan, he's like a, like a guy's guy. But he's not selling some program to be that. I mean, he's selling his uh, Prager Grills or some shit like that, right? Which is perfectly fine. Prager Grills or some other name like that. Whatever. He's selling grills. That's fine, okay? I mean, I don't have a problem with that, and I don't think anybody does either. But when you're selling, like, a membership in some program that you're going to teach people to be a certain way, well, then you have some sort of message, right? Well, yeah, but this guy doesn't have a message. He got big just because he got good guests. And what you start to realize when you start even just casually looking at this liminal order shit, it's just that, you know, he's recycling all kinds of shit from other writers, other better writers, okay? Other better writers who wrote blogs and wrote books and whatnot and, and who put these um, this information and these insights out there. And he's sort of like uh, copy-pasted all this shit and uh, packaged it and he sells it. And he sells it for 100 bucks a month, 1000 Okay, that's just a little uh, background on the Jack Murphy story, which is big in our area of the internet over the past few days.
uh, when I go back to this article in the Atlantic, the irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, author writes, the 12 steps are so deeply ingrained in the United States that many people, including doctors and therapists, believe that attending meetings, earning one sobriety chips, never taking another sip of alcohol is the only way to get better. So attending meetings isn't going to make you get better. It may help you better. Hospitals, outpatient clinics, rehab centers use the 12 steps as the basis for treatment. But although few people seem to realize that there are alternatives. So I like the 12 steps. I, I like IA, but I recognize, yeah, there probably are alternatives. And some of the alternatives will be better use to some people. AA, right? There are prescription drugs and therapies that aim to help patients learn to drink in moderation. Unlike Alcoholics Anonymous, these methods based on modern science have been proved in randomized controlled studies to work. So, yeah, for some people, Alcoholics Anonymous is not their best hope for recovery from So the debate over the efficacy of 12-step programs has been quietly bubbling for decades among addiction specialists. Nowhere in the field of medicine is treatment less grounded in modern science. Well, you could also say for psychiatry. Psychiatry is overwhelmingly not grounded in science. There are no blood tests. There are no objective criteria for deciding psychiatric diagnoses. And the evidence for those anti-depression medication is that it's just slightly above placebo level in effectiveness. So a 2012 report for the National Center on Addiction at Columbia University compared the current state of addiction medicine to general medicine in the early 1900s. So it's probably only until about the 1920s and 1930s that medicine uh, started helping more people than it was hurting and killing. So we've really only had effective medicine since about World War One. So the American Medical Association estimates that out of a million doctors in the United States, only 582 identify as addiction specialists. So most treatment providers who carry the credential of addiction counselor, well, get that, it requires little more than a high school diploma or a GED. Most counselors are in recovery themselves. So most people in need of addiction treatment do not receive anything that approximates evidence-based care. Alcoholics Anonymous was established in 1935. Knowledge of the brain was in its infancy. It offers a single path to recovery, lifelong abstinence from alcohol. The program instructs members to surrender their ego, accept that they are powerless over booze, and make amends to those they've wronged. Right. So I think this works for many people. I think... Tens of thousands of people have benefited from a 12-step approach. And I think there are tens of thousands and millions of people who would receive more benefit from a different approach, perhaps evidence-based medicine. So Alcoholics Anonymous is a famously difficult study. So there have been virtually no academic studies of, of AA and 12-step programs over the past 20 years because by necessity, AA and other 12-step programs keep no record of who attends meetings, members come and go, and are anonymous. So no conclusive data exists on how well it works. There are no experimental studies that unequivocally demonstrate the effectiveness of AA approaches for reducing alcohol dependence because to effectively work AA, you have to work 12 steps. So we don't really have any important studies on diet because you can't track people for years and years and years and be certain of what they're actually eating. Right. So all the studies that you hear on diet are just of very, very little value. Just to have real powerful studies on diet, you need to have controlled experiments where you have control of what people are actually eating. But it's 
there are no mechanisms to control what people are eating for decades. So in his recent book, The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs in the Rehab Industry, Lance Dodes, a retired psychiatric professor from Harvard Medical School, looked at AA's retention rates along with studies on sobriety and rates of active involvement. He puts AA's actual success rate between 5 and 8%. That seems approximately correct to me. From my experience in 12-step programs, most people who come to meetings don't work the program. Right? Working the program means getting a sponsor and working the 12 steps. Masculinity means prioritizing responsibilities over personal pleasures of the moment. Young men are getting terrible ideas about manhood because they grow up without serious male models, and this leads to them getting into men going their own way or men. So the author says, I spent three years researching a book about women and alcohol, her best-kept secret, why women drink and how they can regain control. I encountered disbelief from doctors and psychiatrists every time I mentioned that the Alcoholics Anonymous success rate appears to hover in the single digits. Grown so accustomed to testimonials from those who say AA saved their life, take the program's efficacy as an article of faith. Rarely do we hear from those for whom cross-step treatment doesn't work. So think about it. How many celebrities can you name who bounce in and out of rehab without ever getting better? Why do we assume they failed the program rather than that the program failed them? So some people become religious and they become better and their life flourishes. So taking on religion works for some people. Taking yoga works for some people. Therapy works for some people. Uh, getting a new set of friends, moving to a new location. So different people benefit from different approaches. So when my book came out, many people insist I must be an alcoholic in denial. So Amy Lee Coy, author of the memoir, From Death Do I Part, How I Freed Myself from Addiction, told me about her eight trips to rehab starting at age 13. Well, what is the business model for rehab? If they cure you, you'll never go back. So the business model depends on people returning and returning to rehab. Rehab is very different from getting sober in a 12-step program. And need to get a rehab usually to get sober in a 12-step program. This one woman says, I honestly thought AA was the only way anyone could ever get sober. What's wrong? Are there other ways to get sober? People are infinitely complex. So AA has more than 2 million members worldwide. The structure and support it offers have helped many people, but it is not enough for everyone. That seems obviously true to me. History of AA is the story of how one approach to treatment took root, or other options existed, described itself on the national consciousness, and crowded out dozens of newer methods that have since been shown to work better. So there's probably more evidence that uh, some other method methods work better. It's very hard to measure the effectiveness of AA because to really work AA, you have to work a program, and how can you get objective data of whether or not someone's working through steps. Wow. That says I flunked out of six rehabs by the time I was 18. By the time I was 19. So how did you finally get sober? And uh, am I right about the business model of rehabs that they want to get you better, but they don't want to cure you, and you'll never come back, and they want money out of you. So AA has no central authority. Each AA... Meeting functions autonomously. 
Now, many in AA and rehab insist that 12 steps are the only answer. They frown on using prescription drugs that have been shown to help people reduce their drinking. So I would never say that AA is the only answer or the 12 steps are the only answer. Now, in my life experience, the only program that I've seen consistently change people's character for the better is the 12-step approach. That's just my life experience. Oh, so the chat says, I never got sober, I got off Coke. Switch from scotch to brandy. Weed. AA looks down on those who achieve sobriety by other means as dry drunks, which is a very cult-like response. So a dry drunk is someone in well-set terminology who has all the same troubling impulses, but they manage to abstain. So it doesn't bother me that people in one approach look down on other approaches, but I hope I'm not limited to that. So it doesn't bother me that all steps look down on fiction. That doesn't mean I have to allow that. AA truisms have so infiltrated our culture that many people believe drinkers cannot recover before they hit bottom. Well, many people in 12 steps don't, don't believe that other. Many people enter AA relatively high bottom. They still have a job, they still have a spouse, they still have a car. And a... Researchers say this is akin to offering antidepressants only to those who have attempted suicide, or only prescribing insulin after a patient has lapsed into a diabetic coma. Yeah, that, that's absurd. The one-size-fits-all approach strikes me as absurd. So I'm sure AA really helps some people, and other programs are to different people. So we once thought about drinking problems in binary terms, either you had a problem or you were alcoholic or you weren't, but experts now describe a spectrum. That, that makes sense to me. In certain circumstances, people are going to have an out-of-control porn habit or drinking habit or other debilitating addiction. That change the circumstances. Someone grows up as like life-changing experience and uh, they no longer have that problem. So the U.S. spends $35 billion a year on alcohol and substance abuse treatment. Because of Obamacare, all health plans have to pay for rehab at like $300 a day. So the rehab model is out of control. So Finland has a very different treatment model. It was based on an American neuroscientist named John David Sinclair. So he did research as an undergrad at the University of Cincinnati, fed alcohol to rats. After several weeks without booze, he expected the rats would lose their desire. Instead, he gave them alcohol again. They went on week-long benders, drinking far more than they had ever done before. So he called this the alcohol deprivation effect. So he suggests a fundamental flaw in abstinence-based treatment going cold turkey only intensifies cravings. This explains why relapses are common. So he came to believe that people develop drinking problems through a chemical process. Each time they drink, the endorphins released in the brain strengthen certain synapses. So whenever we do something over and over again, we're strengthening certain synapses. So recovery means fire for synapses. Rewire your responses to stimuli. The stronger these synapses grow, the more likely the person is to crave alcohol. Almost anything can trigger a thirst for booze, and drinking becomes compulsive. 
So Dr. Sinclair theorized if you could stop the endorphins from reaching their target, craving would subside. So he administered opioid antagonists, so drugs, drugs that block opiate receptors, and found that uh, this caused the rats took the medication, they drank less and less alcohol. So there's an opioid antagonist called naltrexone, which is safe and effective for human beings, and when people take it, they, it reduces their craving for alcohol. So this is the model in Finland. So treatment costs about $2,500, which is a fraction of the cost for inpatient rehab in the United States, routinely runs for tens of thousands of dollars for a 20-day stay. So finished treatment is six months of cognitive behavioral therapy, clinical psychologist. So also Finns are different people than Americans and Australians. So Finns are pretty high-achieving people. So just because this approach works in Finland doesn't mean it would have equal effectiveness in the United States or Australia, but I think it would. doesn't mean it would, but it, it might. So when, uh, when the Finns were told some of the treatments offered at American rehab centers, they respond, that doesn't sound scientific. But even bare bones rehab centers charge $40,000 a month, essentially offer no treatment beyond AA sessions led by minimum qualified counselors. So a lot of people have had benefit from taking naltroxone. Naltrexone. So when they take it, they, they no longer have a desire to drink to excess. They find themselves no longer looking forward to a glass of wine with dinner. Now, I appreciate the 12-step approach, but I also appreciate that it's not necessarily work for This is Herb K with classical big book approach. Many people even in long-term in a 12-step fellowship, are very confused and or very ignorant about, and I don't mean that to be negative or dismissive, I just mean they don't know. And they don't know that they don't know. That's what I mean by ignorance. What the true meaning is of meditation. I love 12-step rooms because I find a quality of, of honesty there that, I can't think of any other institution where I encounter it. I find inspiration for me. It's like God with skin on it. I, yeah, inspiration, honesty, and, and connection to, to people. A lot of wisdom. Step rooms. David Foster Wallace was really into his 12-step programs, probably saved his life for many decades. He finally offed himself. And it's thought that he recorded many of the 12-step meetings he went to and then used them as a uh, novel. Of course, be against the, the traditions, you're not supposed to do that. Foster Wallace was a big believer in also programs. As it's in the Webster's Dictionary, as, and as it's intended in the big book. Bill Wilson was a member of the Oxford group. He didn't have any religious training at all. No actual spiritual training. His grandfather, his mother's father, who raised him from about 12 or 13 years old, had some general spiritual leanings, 
but really didn't have much time for organized religion or any tradition like that. And Bill basically assimilated that attitude. Back to this skeptical article in Atlantic. So the problem is nothing about the 12-step approach draws on modern science, not the character building, not the tough love, not even the standard 20 rehab stays. So something can be effective and uh, not be based on modern science. I mean, it's not science, but it's not the source of wisdom. So AA and other programs, they focus on behavioral change. They don't address what we now know about the biology of So alcohol acts many parts of the brain, making it more complex than drugs like cocaine heroin, which just target one area of the brain. So alcohol increases the amount of GABA, gamma amino butyric acid, a chemical that slows down activity in the nervous system and decreases the flow of glutamate, which activates the nervous system. So that's why drinking makes you relax, shed inhibitions, and forget your worries. So alcohol also prompts the brain to release dopamine, a chemical associated with pleasure. Over time, the brain of a heavy drinker adjusts to the steady flow of the alcohol by producing less GABA and more glutamate, resulting in anxiety and irritability. Dopamine production slows. The person gets less pleasure out of everything. So instead of drinking to feel good, end up drinking to feel bad. Alcohol also damages the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for judging risk and behavior. So that's why people keep drinking, even as they realize the habit is destroying lives. The damage can be undone if people are able to get their consumption under control. But when he was dealing with his alcoholism, he went to the Oxford group because his friend Ebby got sober there. And Ebby was as bad a drunk as Bill. And if Ebby can get sober, Bill will get sober. Oh, it's a Christian organization? Oh, well. I can I can deal with that, he says. And it was. It was an organization that was trying to recreate first century Christianity. What they did was they prayed Christian prayers. They read the Bible, the Christian Bible. They sat and they thought about what they read. They actually kept a notebook next to them and a pen. And they wrote down any ideas that they thought were guidance or inspirations, meaning movements of the Spirit, conversations with God. And then if they were in a group, they shared them with one another. Or when they went to their groups, their group meetings, the Octra group meetings, they shared what guidance they got so that they could use the other members. So 12-step, uh, the 12-step approach in the Big Book and AA developed out of the Oxford group. It uh, developed out of uh, teachings of Carl Jung, the addict they transformed their spiritual experience. It was also inspired by the teachings of William James and his philosophy of pragmatism. So William James, Carl Jung, the two biggest inspirations for Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, people who are not religious, even somewhat anti-religious, but who need a necessity of a spiritual experience for transformational change. All right, that will do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.